Hello and welcome to Long Range Sensors, the show where we talk about growing up with Star Trek in England and pick an episode from The Final Frontier to reflect on. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Beam aboard and join the crew to get access to exclusive benefits over at patreon.com forward slash Sensors. Also, uh, I want to give a big shout out to Chris, who recently joined us as a founding member. Thank you so much for joining the crew and helping to support the show. My name's Trev and I'm based in London, England, and joining me from Atlantic Canada is a man who always likes to organise his Star Trek facts into some form of files. It's Alistair. <laughs> hey, How's it going? Dude. Oh, um, I, am, I am doing okay. Uh, however, we are getting a lot of maintenance work done to my building, and they are also mowing the lawn. So there may be a little bit ah. of noise. If anybody does hear that, that's what it is. Sadly, we can't do much about it. Hopefully, it doesn't come across too much. Uh, but otherwise, yes. I am doing very, very well. How about yourself, good sir? Yeah, I just thought I'd uh, foreshadow um, <laughs> what we're going to talk about. It was, I did it sort of quite subtly, so I don't know if anyone's going to notice that. Oh, very um, subtle, very subtle. But yeah, um, I'll, I'll let. Uh, well, you know, I could tell everybody now, I guess, with the foreshadowing that I just did. We are going to talk about a certain range of. Well, it's not even a range; it was a series um, of collectible, kind of not really magazines, but well, pub publications, shall we say, mm. that came out in the late nineties or the sort of mid uh, late nineties. That were the Star Trek fact files. I have lots of fond memories of grabbing these. And yeah, that's what we're going to talk about today before we lead into the episode, which will be Lonely Among Us. Um, so, Al, I guess we'll start off on your side then. Yeah. Uh, so, the Star Trek fact files. So, did you collect these? Do you have them still? How far did you get? Where do, where, where do you land on the fact files? I absolutely got those i loved them when they came out also of note they only came out in uh the uk germany maybe some other european countries so uh, a lot of the americans listening may not even be aware of this and canadians too yeah um, that's a good point actually i never thought it might not have come out there thought yeah the obvious place to bring it out of anything yeah so uh, essentially the idea of doing these kind of was it fortnightly they were released I think it was every two um, weeks, wasn't it? So it started in 1997. Yes. Um, and it finished in, uh, in, in English. So, uh, yeah, you're right. It was literally the UK, Europe, and Australia um, where, that, where this came out. Um, so, yeah, America didn't get it at all. Yeah. Um, so in January 97, finished in November 2002. And I think it came out bi-weekly, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. And that was normal in the UK for that yes. kind of thing to happen. But in the US, it wasn't. And Actually, it was weekly. It was weekly, even better. It was yeah. weekly. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even more Star Trek for us as a kid. <laughs> oh, yeah, no. It's not like we've got seven, didn't have two shows every week, and uh, Star Trek Monthly, yeah. um, and the movie, and mm -hmm. the fact files. So, you know, um, we were living the dream. We That's really were it. in the 90s. Yeah. yeah. But there was, I remember reading that there was a, a book company. Um, I, I can't remember which publisher it was, but they declined the option to do it because it was such an unheard of way of distributing this kind of stuff in the US. 
and they didn't want to yes. risk rocking that boat. And I think they were also worried about the Star Trek Encyclopedia, which at the time was quite prominent. And I think they were worried about oh, yeah. it kind of overlapping with that. For us, though, in the UK, we loved that it overlapped with that. It was just more information. And yeah, um, I mentioned back in the uh, well, several podcasts that I'm, I'm like freaking love the encyclopedia, but um, this is basically an extreme version of that, whereas that was limited by how many pages it could have, and a lot of it was black and white, although yeah. the later re-releases are in colour. Um, actually, I think uh, probably after the fact file started, actually, the later re-releases, this was basically, I would say, memory alpha in print form, really. Hmm. So what would happen is you get the very first issue, and it came with a binder, because you're yes. going to end up with all of these. They had hole punches on them, um, so you'd you'd fill up this this binder and basically build your own fact file uh, each yes. week. And I managed to talk my father into getting it for me for I think it was for my birthday, possibly. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly when it was, but my father did not realize he was signing up for a subscription. Oh dear! These were <laughs> two pounds. I think it was like one pound ninety nine uh, per issue. Yeah. And he didn't find out until I had, I must have had about four or five binders worth, which is when he found out and he canceled the subscription. And I, can you remember how many each binder held? Um, so obviously, you know, I can't remember off the top of my head, but uh, thankfully we have memory alpha. But it looks like every 16 issues. Okay. <laughs> um, when you've got, um, that's a lot. Um, yeah, um, the binder was subscribed to or was supplied. Sorry, to subscribers every sixteen issues, um, and an issue was you know a decent size. It was about you know a few uh, well twenty eight pages, so <laughs> not the size of probably a, like um, it's more than your average kind of you know I don't know computer magazine or video game magazine, which tends to sort of approach like a hundred pages, but. Over 16, you know, issues per binder. You can see how big that would get. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And uh, so that means that my father spent where he thought he was just spending um, just a few pounds. He must have spent at least 130 British pounds without realizing it. <laughs> yeah, it would build up. I mean, I subscribe. I think, I think I first heard about it in Star Trek Monthly. I think they advertised it in that. Mm. So I thought, oh my God, that's yeah. amazing. Obviously, I was that perfect age, I was sort of, you know, um, 13, 14 at that point. So that perfect age, when, you know, in January 97, when the first issue came out, you're looking at um, First Contact had just come out, pretty much exactly had just come out. Mm. Um, I remember seeing it in the cinema, um, probably in, in January 97, I think, in the UK. Um, and Voyager was going into the third season, I think. Um, it would have been around then, yeah. Yeah, yeah uh, Deep Space Nine heading into already in the fifth season. So it was a pretty exciting time. Star Trek Monthly been going for three or four years at that point, sort of three and a bit years. Um, and yeah, so um, it would always mention you know new books that are coming out, new reference books, ga games, uh, toys in there, like we talked about the micro machines and things like that. They would review that stuff, model kits. They'd review all that stuff in Star Trek Monthly. Uh, obviously, that magazine's still going to this day. Mm -hmm. Um and I remember they announced it in there, and I was like, oh, my God, this is, like, freaking amazing. There wasn't, obviously, any online encyclopedia of Star Trek at that point, so something, anything in print was, you know, the, the way to go, really. So, yeah, um, I subscribed to it, and like yourself, I think for a good, 
I got through at least four or five binders, maybe more. Um, so in terms of time, that's probably, I mean, after a year, you really would have picked up like 52 issues. That's so to be honest, but probably dropped off at about 98, 99 time. Mm. Um, I, I kind of, I feel like that probably about right. So, uh, but yeah, that amounted to a lot of binders. Um, it finished in 2002. So in English, it would have, it would have got as far as, uh, the first season of enterprise. It's they're cool things to have now, but. Well, there, well, no, well, there was a lot of the facts in there haven't really been, um, you know, aren't wrong, I don't, unless there's an episode of Discovery or something that would, that would retcon something to the point where it's not relevant anymore. But I don't think that's really happening. I don't think that's actually going to happen I, I, at all. I think, I think the only real thing that's kind of been retconned by the uh, newer series is that the animated series is now considered canon. Yes. Yeah. Or at least um, elements of it. And... Uh, from what I recall, I don't think Star Trek Fat Files ever went through any of the animated series. It was just the live action stuff. And like you were saying with Star Trek Monthly, where there's a lot of reviews and things, this is all in-universe facts, um, yeah. purely from an in-universe standpoint. And a lot of the publications that we saw, like the encyclopedia, like the technical manuals, they would have sketches in. They would be predominantly text-based. These were very graphical as well. They would have like layouts of the ships, of bridge designs. I just and a lot of um, set photos as well. I just remember it being a very colourful publication. Yeah, I think it was kind of in like it used like the L cars kind of um, a graphic design style mm. for the pages and sort of those sort of fonts and everything. So it fit perfectly um, in, into like the Star Trek design style that we see on the TV show um, yeah. and kind of what, what how memory alpha styles itself to this day so it looked like very very cool there was tons of photos and like you say sort of very detailed diagrams I, yeah i don't think it had any production notes like at all um i don't think i think it was like you said i think it was completely in universe yeah um which is kind of for me a bit annoying because i do like reading about that production stuff even like the star trek encyclopedia would have some production notes as to why mm. something is the way it is if there was an actual production reason for it um, and I think also like 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 um, the Star Trek technical manuals would have like bits in italics at the bottom saying the reason why we designed it like this is because you know we, there were certain plastics we had to use and you know and all that stuff, um, which is interesting. Although some people maybe there's probably people can also correct me and say no, I hated reading that because I I wanted to be completely in the bubble of the universe of Star Trek. I didn't want to know how the sausage is made. <laughs> I suppose is <laughs> right, you know what I'm trying to say, but um, or how the sausage is yeah. replicated. <laughs> the sausage is, is replicated. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it was it, it was just very very cool. Um, and you know, you got them in binders. I think each sort of section, each each sort of you know sixteen issue run um, that would end up being end up in a binder. I think got like it got like um, a breakdown of the context of that set of that whatever that sixteen issue run would cover mm. with that first issue of that run because there was um, it would start off. The first 16 issues were basically about like a guide to the Star Trek galaxy, like like general overview of the different races and, and things like that. Uh, then the next run of 16 issues would be about Starfleet specifically and about the spaceships and the space stations. And the next run would be about non-Federation starships, so Klingons, Romulans, and all their starships. Uh, mm. The next run after that would be personnel files, so, you know, James T. Kirk, you know... Um, 
all the human characters, all the alien characters. Then there was equipment and technology, starship logs uh, of every episode and every film. Um, well, up, up, up to Insurrection, it'd be at that point. It finished before Nemesis uh, came mm. out. And I think it looks like the last uh, group of files was an index of, of the entire series. So, um, yeah, um, it was really, really well organized. I mean, essentially. Do, do you feel that it was organized, though, as you were collecting? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to tell how planned um, it was, really. Um, I've heard of, like, you know, other, um, you know, collector series. They often think, well, we're kind of hoping that we'll sell enough to be able to last for, you know, so-and-so amount of issues, and then whatever we do until we've planned for that amount. Um, I don't really know what their plan was if they felt we're going to go on, because those Star Trek was still in production then. There was no indication that, enterprise would finish in 2005 you know in the, in the late mm. 90s there was no indication where well, there would be an enterprise you know <laughs> deep space nine and voyager were the, the latest shows at that point yeah it's it's I, I so i never got to the end um myself so um unfortunately i can't comment on any personal experience with that it, it's yeah. more that for me like I, I remember that by the time i ended up stopping collecting it even though there is all of these different sections of, of how they were organizing all these files, it was starting to get to a point where it felt very unwieldy. Like there was just so many of these things, um, trying to pinpoint and find specific stuff. Uh, and if, if you didn't have things, like you'd have to be meticulous in putting these things together to make yeah. sure everything was in order. And I, I did find that there was problems with that. It's also like these binders take up quite a bit of space as well. Yeah, they're, they're freaking huge. I mean, I think I had them in my, in, in my bedroom, but I had, like, obviously I was collecting the magazine. I had other Star Trek, you know, MacGuffins all littered mm. around my bedroom, so I was just, like, brim, brimming with, with Trek stuff. Um, but yeah. obviously, there's like you said, this is kind of a golden age of all of this. We're kind of in, in another one now, really. Um, but um, that was kind of the first real golden age of Star Trek, so you were just getting pummeled with stuff to buy. Yeah. Um, we took it for granted, like we say. It was just like, yeah, you know, we can just get, we'll, we'll pick up this stuff um, whenever. But um, yeah, um, the binders were huge. They were super heavy. Um, it was, mm. to me, it was fairly easy to store away if you've got a nice sort of shelving unit that you can stuff these into. Um, to be honest, I've had no real desire to go. I mean, I think I've still got them. I think they're at my parents'. Um, but my dad's into Star Trek, so he's probably quite happy to keep hold of them. He probably reads them, I guess, yeah. still. I haven't looked at these personally since, uh, God, it would have been literally like when I had them. Uh, well, probably I moved out of my parents' place in my mid-20s. I'm well past my mid-20s now. Uh, so, you know, we're looking at over 10 years, shall we say. So uh, I think mm -hmm. I, I can't remember really looking back on them at any time near the end of my run of living with my parents. So <laughs> I haven't touched them. Early 2000s might have been the last time that I actively read them. Uh, yeah. in any way potentially so a long long time ago what, what about you yeah well you, you even asked before if i still had them and uh sadly my father ended up selling them simply because he was needing to move house it was taking up a lot of space in his uh, yeah. garage which he wasn't going to have room in the new place and i still owed him a little bit of money for um stuff from when i moved over so it was one of those some of my belongings i i had him sell and it was basically just keep the money and put that towards what i owe you uh, so sadly, that's one of the things which had to go. But to to pay to get that shipped over to Canada would have right. been an absolute fortune. 
Um, That's the I, thing with any kind of books or anything like that. They, like, I mean, me buying comics, you know, especially bundles um, of yeah. them. And like recently, I bought a big bundle of comics um, just within the UK, and that was like the postage cost nearly as much as the actual, you know, thing cost itself, <laughs> the auction cost. So yeah, yeah it's it's expensive, very much yeah. so. I, I still actually remember a conversation with my father, which I, I completely forgotten about when he was when he found out that he was still paying for these, um, asking me how many more there were going to be. And me just going, going like, I don't know. <laughs> I just figured it was like yeah. an endless thing. So, yeah, like, I don't know. I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like, it's like it, you're going to collect so out. much. You're going to turn into like Vija from having so much information and you'll start to, you know, decide you want to rebel against humanity because you've read all, everything, yeah. all of Star Trek. Um, well, you know from, what? from what I can see, um, they planned 96 issues originally uh, over a yeah. two-year production run. So... I mean, 96, I mean, that, that would have take, taken it to, well, it looks like they basically only went slightly over. I mean, um, when it got to um, part 105, or, or uh, from what I can see, files 81 to 105, um, actually, it's difficult to kind of break it down. I mean, I'm looking at what they've got on, on, on memory alpha, mm. and it's difficult to know. There was, it looks like there was 304 individual issues and that in them were file cards that were individually numbered. Right, yeah. But it looks like, well, obviously it carried on running till 2002, so they went, you know, if they planned to, to a two-year run, that would have been, like, finished in, you know, obviously, you know, beginning of 99. So they clearly probably had to stop, I guess, by, by the sort of, you know, 18-month mark. They were, it was probably clear at that point that we're selling, like, hotcakes. We're clearly going to, we can clearly go over the two-year point and the 96 files, Mm. um that we've got planned so why don't we just keep on going so um i'm they obviously plan maybe another two years um yeah. after that and they would have hit 2000 then another up after that sounds like it kind of the interest started to wane when the interest in star trek generally started to wane which was you know when enterprise and nemesis kind of hit you know we can see we yeah. know what happened that was when when the decline or the rot really started to set it's set in yeah so when the whole tally with that Berman and Braga just were starting to feel stale. And yes. It felt like things were sort of being recycled, which is a shame. But I remember that there was a lot of blame being pay, uh, pushed towards those guys in how Star Trek had kind of become. Um, part of it was Berman just not wanting to change with the times. He was wanting to stick steadfast to um, the rules that Roddenberry created. And that also yeah. caused a lot of uh, conflicts with the DS9 guys. Berman's like... Um... He's a complicated person to really judge, really, because <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of stuff that he did was great, but then there's some of the best Star Trek stuff happened in spite of him. Mm. Um, actively, you know, he was kind of actively against a lot of it, but thankfully, you know, whoever championed it won out, like Iris Stephen Bear, for example, like you're saying with Deep Space Nine. I think that he um, kind of uh, just did what he wanted and asked for forgiveness later. <laughs> yes yeah it's easy to ask for forgiveness and permission that old one yeah that was it yeah yeah um one one other thing that i'm remembering actually with these fat files because we've, we've already spoke about how they were big and they were heavy yes yeah i don't know about you but i always found that the files would tear as well because they're just hole punched bits of paper yeah that's under, a good point. under the weight they would constantly turn you'd end up with pages falling out I got, I don't know what they're called, but they're just basically like 
um, stickers that are just a white ring that you would put around just to strengthen the the holes themselves. You put one on top, one on reverse. And oh, yeah. I remember every time I got an issue, I had to painstakingly, you know, pull it. Because these pages, they were, there was kind of like a seam that held them together, a bit like a magazine. And then you would just tear each page separate yeah, from it. Yeah, it was it. kind of glue, wasn't it? Kind of, yeah. blink, kind of glue, yeah. Yeah, so you, you'd tear it apart. And then have to painstakingly put, uh, there was three holes for each one. Um, so yeah, so we're having to put six of these per sheet. And it was just time consuming. But at the same time, I'm kind of reading through each page in detail as I'm doing this. So it wasn't too bad. But I just remember that being quite a time consuming thing to do. Because uh, just knowing that all of my pages would get ruined otherwise. Yeah, um, I, I remember that because I'd, um, wherever I had them stored at one stage, they were sort of stood upright and just the weight of the the the, the fact files inside would just start to, um, you know, that they, they would end up sort of leaning leaning downwards and forwards. So that would start to mm. put pressure on the holes and they would start to kind of get eaten into by the um, the rings them, themselves. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I do remember that. I don't recall them actually sort of ever coming away from from the rings and uh, maybe if i went back and look now some they might have yeah uh, but i don't think they've been stored upright anywhere i think they're in a box somewhere probably laying flat right. if i still if my dad's as, as i kept them but, they might not have but um yeah they were just extremely i mean 19 binders is what you're looking at um i mean i've got quite a small flat as it stands right now and even buying just a regular size book i kind of have to really think about where i'm going to put it mm. once i've once i'm done with it um, yeah. So yeah, there's no way that I could fit these, um, and yeah, they're kind of a bit redundant now, I guess. Unfortunately, with the subsequent years that we've had with Star Trek, um, uh, but to be honest, if they did a new one, I don't think I'd want to buy it anyway. I mean, if they redid it, would you? Would you want to jump in again? No, because I think that so much of this has been sourced um, by people like Memory Alpha and Exastrus Scientia. Um, a lot of these places have kind of used a lot of the imagery that was produced for these. Uh, from yeah. what I recall, there were multiple staff members. I think it was something like three or four of them uh, were assigned to basically be liaisons to give the the British production company who were making these the all the technical information so that everything was accurate. And that was one of the things that was really great about this was that you got that kind of inside scoop and actual factual canon information. Um, a lot yes. of yeah. of places that we have online are very good at getting that kind of fact-checking thing and they're exploring every possible um, source now. Not just going to like select people on the team, but also interviews elsewhere, um, other publications where other people have kind of gotten stuff. I feel that it's more complete now online for free than what you would get yeah, in a publication yeah. like this. Um, though yeah. that's not to put down some of the stuff that we're getting from companies like Eagle Moss, who are doing some fantastic ones on uh, on the ships, both in universe and real world. Uh, in some cases, they're doing them separately. If you're buying models, it tends to be both in a single magazine. Um, but th so, yeah, so the, there's there's definitely sources for it. But I think that a lot of that information just ends up on Memory Alpha and other yeah. such places anyway. Uh, in the end. Yeah, um, 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's just the fact that they're very difficult to store unless you've got a very large place with loads of you know shelving that you can mm. easily fit these on. Um, a lot of the information has been superseded with subsequent episodes that might make some of the entries in there a bit irrelevant now uh, because of some new information has come to light or a, a technology that's showcased in there. Um, they maybe have had to have explained it at the time with some non-canon sources, which they did mm. lean on if there wasn't uh, any production um, notes on, you know, uh, or a series Bible that explained a particular gadget or something, they would lean on maybe some of the non-canon sources like comics and novels and all that stuff. Um, and then subsequently an episode came out that explained it. I mean, a good example would be like, you know, maybe why, why do Klingons have smooth foreheads in the original series? Um, I don't know if that's addressed in the fact files. I can't remember, but, I you know. I either, after, but. Yeah. But yeah, that definitely end, would have been one of those things, though, that, yeah. Uh, yeah, we had an episode of Enterprise that would actually go on and explain that. Um, mm. So um, they, you know, they, they wouldn't. That would have happened after the series finished of uh, fact files. That um, is the problem yeah. with with doing this when shows were still in production. I think a lot of stuff that's come out since has been, you know, since uh, Enterprise has wrapped up and we were kind of in that dark age. A lot of stuff has kind of come out since then, where that information doesn't change. Exactly. You would have to continuously, um, you know, release like addendums and, and um, additional supplementary stuff to be able to add in um, the, the new material that's come to light. But then how do you, you know, if, the, if, if one something happens in an episode that causes a previous fact file to become or to be wrong, what do you do? <laughs> Um, you yeah. tell them, oh, you throw away like fact file issue twelve because this new episode happened last week and it's proved everything in there is is no longer accurate. Um, well, it's kind of yeah. like we were saying with the interactive um, Star Trek Encyclopedia on CD-ROM that some of those issues they ended up having to release updates. So there's basically like a patch that would give you the up to date information, or if you were buying the book, you get a revised edition, and so you'd end up with multiple books in your collection. Um, like, cause I remember that there was one that I, I don't think it had the defiant on the cover and then they released another encyclopedia that did. And so you could kind of tell which one was like how old it was by what ships were on the cover. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, um, it, it's, it's difficult. I don't, it's, I don't think you know, the, the, the return wouldn't really be worth the, inv the investment. I don't think many people would probably want to buy into that sort of series these mm. days. Um, people obviously buy the let's build a USS enterprise. That's a much different proposition um, yes. you're basically subscribing to a huge model kit you know which uh in my eyes off i think they're a bit too expensive but if you're into that you know you know you're going to get like a cool looking model at the end um and that's only something you can deliver physically um yeah. so there's no real equivalent to that you know off the internet whereas memory alpha alpha basically is that um star trek uh, fact files although they, they did release an updated star trek encyclopedia um a few years ago i think it comes in like two or three huge books um so and it, just a one-off encyclopedia still works and they're kind of cool that is something that does interest me in buying um i've got like the last revision of the original encyclopedia which i think was around 99 2000 hmm. i still have that um but and uh the updated encyclopedia i think came out in like 2016 or 17 or something um and it's but it's quite expensive it's about 100 pounds uh, but it's absolutely freaking huge as well. It's like I think it's like three or four big books in a big, you know, case. Just because you know, there's been a lot has happened in the Star Trek universe since you know that sort of 1999 edition yeah. encyclopedia. Um, yeah, 
one thing I do remember from these though is that the the paper quality, even though we've we've already said that like some of the holes could tear over time, um, I remember the the paper quality being quite good. I don't know if it was just the cover that was glossy, but I feel like the actual pages themselves were glossy. I'm not sure what your memories are of it. Um, yeah, it was kind of nicer, as I recall. I don't, yeah. I don't remember it being particularly flimsy or cheap. No. Um, it was decent quality. I mean, it was like just as good as like a, um, you know, your average magazine, really, but probably a bit mm. glossier and shinier and smoother yeah. um, than the inside of a, but not like a front cover would be on like a magazine, but kind of in between paper pages and like a front cover is probably how i would describe it but yeah um it wasn't it wasn't like cheap it, it, it felt like um a high quality product is how i would describe it yeah i think it's probably the most substantial thing we'd ever had at that point as well um yeah as, as you're saying without access to this kind of stuff as a commonplace thing on the internet um you know and even with some of these books going in pretty depth it seemed like these were just really massive deep dives into everything and just the the visual presentation was unlike anything that we'd seen before yeah i mean they took it seriously like paramount um again just reading into the production about it they had three star trek staff mem- members to also it was the... it was three then yeah i, I knew it was around yeah. three or four but uh but yeah i don't know if they're full-time or it's something that to pick up you know alongside whatever their regular star trek jobs were i imagine it'd be uh, the latter because there was oh, i forgot what her name is there, there was a, a, a lady who was responsible for all of the props so she was like the, the prop master and anytime they were trying to refer to all the stuff uh even for star trek monthly uh she would have to go into those archives and, and grab them and so i wouldn't be surprised if she's potentially one of the three yeah uh, if, after right yeah i'm just having a look here yeah penny juday there we go that's it there yeah penny go, juday yeah. Yeah, she uh, she would be in charge of a lot of that information and pulling stuff from archives and things. So it makes sense that she was the one involved for, with that, uh, along with Larry, uh, is it Nemesek? Or N- I, I think that's how it was pronounced. Nemesek, perhaps? Yeah, yeah, he wrote some of the compendiums. Uh, yes, he did, uh, yeah. yeah. It's a familiar yeah. name for yeah. it. Um, yeah. It looks like Guy Vardaman as the art director. Uh, yeah, so, he was an extra uh, yeah. in, a, in a, quite a lot of episodes of Star Trek, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So they really good, took it seriously. Yeah, good all-rounded team uh, as well. And um, uh, it looks like uh, the Acudas were obviously roped into it as well, because why would you not want the Acudas involved? Well, it looks like they did, but then they backed down um, because they were, because the scope was too big for them to dedicate enough time to it. Um, Which is I, fair. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it would be crazy, but I don't know how, you know, um, how many issues they would, or um, fact files they were involved with directly. But... Um, yeah, I mean, they were already you know, busting their asses to get the show produced and, and, and out there. So I can imagine they had very little spare time outside of that. We know how, you know, how long the production was on a, on a daily basis, really. You know, basically a sort of 14, 16-hour thing, really, um, yeah. wasn't it? And, um, and then you also had them juggling with the movies as well, because the Acudas would 100% have been involved in all of that too. So to balance all of that. I can only imagine how busy a time that would have been for them. It's an interesting little footnote here where, um, regarding that, where um, Larry, um, like you say, Nemechek, Nemesek, um, claims that they didn't want to, you know, commit to the fact files because they saw it as a, th- a direct competitor and a threat to the Star Trek encyclopedia. So, right, yeah. yeah. Yeah, which is which why it didn't end sense. up in uh, in the US. Yeah. 
Kind of. Apparently, didn't make a, a make a get over to the US because um, part work magazines uh, weren't really a thing um, in the US. Yeah, that's um, what I was it, explaining at like the yeah. beginning. You know, yeah, that yeah, it was yeah. it was commonplace yeah. in the UK, but just not in America, and they just didn't want to take that risk. You know, just jumping yeah, into exactly. a, a a model that could uh, not be financially sustainable over there. Yeah, and I guess they picked you know the markets um, that where star trek was most popular mm. um and that turned out to be you know we we were among those um so we were fortunate to get it and because part work stuff is very common remember a ton yeah. of those when i was growing up as a kid whether they're ones that allow you to make a model or just yeah. general there was a star I, wars fact files as well yeah it the was fact that there's popular. the the starship one there's also a back to the future one where you can build the back to the future delorean and there's a bunch of other ones like that as well um yeah. i think it is more commonplace in the US now than it was yeah. then. It'd be interesting to see what it was that actually kick-started that, because obviously Star Trek did not for America. Um, I, I do wonder what was the one that actually managed to break out and and change that. Perhaps. Well, I guess we have to make a distinction there a little bit, because the ones that I see that are also available in America tend to be the ones where you're getting like a MacGuffin with it each month. Yes. Um, like uh, I've watched, there's tons of videos on YouTube of like, you know, Build, build the T-800 Terminator endoskeleton, you know, and build the Enterprise, build the DeLorean. Like, yeah. Like it's, yeah, it's always some yeah. physical model with it. Yeah. yeah, it's not just pure fact files where you don't really get anything physical apart from the actual, you know, sheets of paper with the information on it. And the um, binder, which was always uh, free. Yeah. They always included that with uh, no extra cost, which I thought was really good of them. If you're a subscriber, yeah, which was good. You really needed it because yeah. how else were you going to organize it? Um but yeah, that was the the Star Trek fact file. So mm. um, we both sort of have very fond memories of those. Um, again, we don't really have them to hand anymore. To be honest, they don't seem to go for a lot on eBay. I just, you know, just while we were chatting there, I looked them up on eBay and someone was selling, this is in the UK, um, the complete set of 19 binders. It went for £2. Uh, but what? it's £75 postage. <laughs> <laughs> So, so, so what we pounds. so what we paid for one single issue, somebody shipping aside has managed to get yeah. the entire collection. Yeah, exactly. And um, with inflation, that's actually worked out even cheaper than what we spent. It's not too bad. I mean, I'm seeing a few. Yeah, there's a few like um, <laughs> another complete set went for fifty pounds. I think it looks like free post. Wow, they're going to get killed on that postage unless it's collection. Um, but yeah, I mean, it looks like for, you know, well under a hundred quid, you can, if you wanted to, you could get all 19 binders, but yeah, I can't say I'd be that tempted. I think it was, I probably got a decent chunk of them anyway, lying around somewhere at my parents. Um, but yeah, yeah um, can't say it appeals to me just far too unwieldy these days. Um, unfortunately, I've got way too much junk, uh, Star Trek related and non-Star Trek related to really dive in again. Yeah, just yeah. imagine buying the entire collection of somebody, 19 biters, and you find that one page torn is missing. Exactly. Heartbreak, <laughs> right? <laughs> but for now, um, it's time for us to put away our fact file binders as we fly into a strange cloud in the Next Generation episode, Lonely Among Us. Yeah, and this is Season 1, Episode 7, which is very early on in the Next Generation's run. Indeed it is. Um, yeah, and there's some very stark... I mean, I watched it last night. It was actually... 
Yeah, I remember as as uh, well, when I got into the point where I was watching Trek episodes over again, you know, in my later teens, when with access to Sky TV, when they were just absolutely pummeling Next Generation on, on literally it was on every day on Sky, and they would get to the end of, this, of, 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 of the run and they would go back to the start and show it again. Um, or, in, you know, when I initially got Sky as far as had been um, released in the UK and it wasn't necessarily the whole run had been finished by that point. Mm. Um, it was actually the first time that I really got to see a lot of those first season episodes. Um, and I remember an early one that I thought was actually quite good was Lonely Among Us. Yeah. Um, and watching it back last night, I thought, yeah, this is actually kind of crap. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had the same thought, actually. The... Uh... Ending was just like utter face palm, um, but we'll get to that. Yeah. Um, so Al, like, with you know, before we try and um, completely slag it off before we even get to the plot, how how do we start <laughs> off with this um, rather disappointing episode? <laughs> well, <laughs> it, it's not without its charms. We, we'll yeah. say that. Oh yeah. But it starts in the Beta Rena system, which is a system that has two planets, both of which are inhabited by separate species, the Anticons and the Soleil. The Soleil are kind of reptilian species, and um, the... They look like people from, from Masters of the Universe. Yeah, kind of snake heads. Yeah, it was like a, they literally could be action figures from He-Man. That's what I was thinking when I saw them. Yeah, and the Anticons <laughs> look more like something out of Star Wars, in all honesty. They do, actually, yeah. 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 Uh, but both of them have achieved space flight. Now, I'm assuming that because they are both applying for Federation membership, that that means that they're warp capable. But they don't say warp capable, they just say space flight, which, again, we're in the very first few episodes of Next Generation, so things are still getting established. But, Was that even firmly established that that's when we make first contact uh, in the original series? Um, was that even a thing making first contact? We always thought the Prime Directive was established in the original series quite firmly, although Kirk would often just flat out break it. Uh, but... Um, <laughs> I don't think there was really any first contact related stuff where they were like, we have to make first contact and make sure they're warp capable and everything. I don't think that was really touched upon in the original series. I'm not sure, but it definitely came up early on in Next Generation. That was definitely a, a thing that came up then. So yeah, maybe, but I, I, I would take it just to mean that it is warp capable. It's one of those things you can always just, you know, just retcon it quite yeah. easily yeah. with that one. Yeah, um, exactly. But these two, because they've obviously gone into space very early on in their neighbors, they didn't get on and they are now mortal enemies. And so they're being shipped. Uh, well, there's some delegates that are being shipped and delivered to a neutral conference planet called Parliament, which I always found yeah. is an odd name to, to call the planet. But what are you going to call like a planet that has a lot of political stuff on it? I know. Parliament, yeah. right? Parliament, Gosh, yeah. I, I dare anybody to take a shot of something every time someone says Parliament or Parliament. It's <laughs> a kind of very oddly pronounce it, but yeah, um, that there word gets said a lot. <laughs> this is now a drinking game. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the, uh, the Anticons are already on board. Uh, the Soleil are beamed up and there's just blatant hostilities coming from the Soleil because they're annoyed that they were picked up second and not first. And they don't want to have quarters anywhere near the Anticons, which, to be honest, given the size of a galaxy-class ship, not difficult at all to accommodate. Oh, really? Um, no. But they wanted to be, was it like up... Upwind. Up, 
It's, it's like upwind or up rivers. Yeah. yeah. There's no wind, really. So. They want to be towards the front of the ship. <laughs> That's, oh, it's just, there's so much rivalry. But it's also like, you seriously considering letting these people enter the Federation when they actually just want to kill each other. And they're quite happy to admit, to tell you that we're trying to kill these other guys. Yes. You know, is that, that's that, even that straight away, I was like, why are you even entertaining this? Mm. Um, it's just, yeah, that's, I can't that, headcanon that at all. There, there's been episodes <laughs> since when uh, Picard's just been like, you're not ready, and has just beamed away. And uh, yeah, exactly. it's like, we'll, we'll talk these to you guys want to kill each other. It's like, yeah. oh yeah, yeah, they want to kill each other. Yeah, get them in. We love those guys in the Federation. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't make sense. There's definitely a lot of Roddenberryism with this introduction because Riker and Picard are discussing the anger between them. And Riker even points out that he doesn't even understand human hostilities towards each other in our own history. Yes. And that's very much going with Roddenberry's whole thing about there can be no um, conflict between any of the characters. Yeah, it's like they really went out of their way to have this these two species hate each other so they could just highlight that little point for Riker to point out. Yeah. Like, hey, look at all these people killing each other, but we don't. We think it's rubbish. <laughs> Guys, you get that, yeah? You understand that? Cool. Also, nope. like, um, I think that was the first appearance of the dress uniform as well. It was, yeah. Scene. And the only yeah. time that Yar ever wore one either because she left before oh, she was able bit. to don one again. It's a very long teaser as well. Very mm. long without... It's like four and a half minutes. Yeah. Um, I don't know what the record is. I'm sure there's longer ones, but it feels like we jump through three or four separate scenes before we even get to the, you know, the credits, which is quite odd. And the reason why I know it's four and a half minutes is because I had that exact same feeling when the credits rolled. It's like, huh, that's been a while. And I actually stopped to just have a look and see (laughs) how far through we were. Right. Yeah. It's noticeable, isn't it? It really, it really has to establish for an episode that doesn't really have much going on. It kind of has to establish a lot to get there um, before the credits. It's it's kind of weird, but yeah. Well, well, they kind of want a cliffhanger before the commercials, and there's nothing worthy of a cliffhanger yet to pull people back in yeah. after the commercials are over. So there is that. But they they find an unusual energy object ahead, uh, very very nondescript. And it's yes. basically this lightning cloud that's traveling at warp, which, which is weird because they see that it's traveling at warp, but that's the only time it seems to be doing so. Every other time we see it, subsequently from then, it's stationary. Yeah, and there's an initial kind of thing, oh, that's kind of weird that a cloud's traveling at warp. And then it's kind of not really thought about after that. It's just yeah. like, oh, yeah. And then, yeah. then yeah, like you say, the rest of the, sh- the episode, it's just hanging out somewhere, yeah. stationary. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Picard just wants to do a fly-by sensor pass. And yeah, and it's kind of a janky like shot of the enter- like the reused shot of the Enterprise about to go to warp from the credits. Um, <laughs> and, passing past. and obviously the effect of the cloud is just like food dye in a water tank, um, the usual thing. You know, there's obviously you can literally count the layers from some of these scenes. You've got like the star field, mm. it's the background plate. And then you have the plate of the Enterprise, and then over the top of that, they lay over the um, the food dye in a water tank, which is the. I'm not. That's not me like throwing shade on it. No, it looks. It still looks good. Obviously, it was. They used that for nebulas and stuff. Obviously, the Mutara nebulas or the famous example. Um, But it looks very similar to really a nebula. It's kind of hard to tell what's even the difference between this cloud and also there's like later on got the Calamarain 
and like other kind of cloudy stuff that's kind of the same. The the, the Voyager episode, The Cloud. Um, <laughs> that, I really that, had to come up with a name there for that. Yeah, that is a good point, though. That that is a, a very good point because, but with it being just so early on in the run, there weren't those are the ones to compare it to. And, oh, really? No. Yeah, but there's actually a really it's it's not a great scene, but. Geordie and Worf are in sense of maintenance, and I don't recall us ever seeing that set ever again. It's a weird set, isn't it? It looks, it looks actually weird. kind of cool. It's it's white. It's really bright, like really yeah. not typical Enterprise D color of an of a room, which is kind of beigey, kind of goldy color. Yeah. It's very white. It's it's kind of just a bunch of panels um, yeah, that are kind of sticking really out of the wall as well. Kind of interesting. It's almost kind of like. Um, you're you're going into the uh, like the cupboard under the stairs where you're making do with what room is available based around the things around it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think we see this room again. Um, no. Weirdly. Yeah. No. I even had a look on uh, Memory Alpha briefly, just in the episode notes, and there's no mention of that room at all. So. No. No, I mean it looks uh, apparently it, it, it's a redress of engineering. Um, apparently, because I guess that's what the pool, the pool table, in like the middle is like the pool. You can kind of tell that's the pool ta- table yeah. um, where they kind of hang out, you know, a lot, um, but um, with some extra sort of stuff on top of it. Um, but yeah, it's um, uh, it's kind of an odd um, place to to sort of set this scene up, really, because a very specific thing has to happen at this point. So maybe this is how they thought the best way to show this um, was to have this set made. Yeah, yeah. But one thing that they didn't really show, at least not to my memory, was something that Data points out, and that's that the cloud is changing shape. Yeah. I just don't think they were able to show that back in uh, 1987. Yeah, they sort of say there's energy patterns going on, and there's not really like there's kind of flashes of stuff, like it's like there's a thunderstorm going on. Mm. But you kind of have to sort of use your imagination a bit to cover those sort of cracks. Again, it's probably, I mean, I was watching it on Netflix like I normally do, and obviously it's a HD version. They've, they've tried to keep it in. They have, they don't try to like, you know, let's do a huge upgrade of all the effects. They've just literally tried to capture what the original effect was showing and mm-hmm. just upscale it really. Um, which is, I think how we'd all want it to be done. I think when it, it just wouldn't match if it was some, if they really went to town on it. But yeah, it's um, it's yeah, it's not a great. It's it doesn't really carry across the idea that this is some super cool, you know, cloud that's got a bunch of junk going on. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. It's just there, there's something there. What what is it? And back in sense of control, there's this kind of electric buzzing sound coming from one of the panels. So Wolf crosses the room to investigate. He pulls out a stylus, and uh, I've never seen people. Sort of really treating the uh, the Alcars with whatever tool it is that he has, um, but as he's doing so, he gets electrocuted. He's surged. He's got this kind of blue lightning surging all around his body, and he's doing his very Klingon screaming, grunting kind of. It's a hilarious face. <laughs> it is. Yeah, just gritting his teeth uh, and then collapses. I mean, that and... is so. That is so season one TNG. Someone using a stylus. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like we know, I'm pretty sure there's other season one episodes where people use styluses on stuff like in engineering yeah. and a thing, thing. I think maybe in like naked now, like I think there's someone's yeah. like 
trying to sing some, some shit, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's fair with the pads, because they'll use them quite frequently with pads to handwrite and do handwriting recognition, but yeah. but just on a a panel on the wall, it's just it seems it seems weird. But Geordie calls for a medical emergency, and we finally, four and a half minutes in, are hitting the opening titles. That is our cliffhanger. Is Wolf screaming after being electrocuted and passing out? Um, an interesting thing as well, just to talk about um, the actual season one titles, because this the uh, next mm. generation titles change fairly frequently. Um, but so that we have this this initial title sequence that we have in season one is kind of a pass through um, our the solar system. Uh, although actually the other ones do as well, but in from different in different um, like they use different shots. Um, I think it's kind of cool. Um, like I said, in HD, they've kind of ups the, the, the detail on each planet looks kind of cool now. Um, mm. it was then, but um, the music is obviously a lot more synthy um, than it would be like later on. That was kind of downplayed a little bit. Yeah. Plus, they were taking some of the movie music and adapting it to a television theme, uh, yeah. but, which worked surprisingly well. Uh, and I think kind of helped with that Star Trek feeling uh, for something that didn't look anything like Star Trek at the time. Yeah, I mean, there was there was a there was actually a different theme for Star Trek: The Next Generation that you can look up on like YouTube and you can hear it. And some of the sort of bits of that theme are used in you know, early season one and in the pilot. Yeah, um, I believe it was on the Encounter at Farpoint uh, soundtrack. You yeah. got the alternate tracks for it as well. Um, and honestly, it kind of sounds a bit crap and a bit over the top. Um, I can see why they probably thought, yeah, <laughs> it was. I don't it was use this. It's very 80s. It's very dated. Like the next generation theme itself has, has uh, survived quite well, I think. I think it's yes, aged well. Yes. But the one that they thankfully did not go with uh, did not age well at all. No. Uh, I mean, look it up if you haven't heard it, but it's way too upbeat, a bit too like peppy and like, mm. it's just weird. Uh, the, the, <laughs> the classic Jerry Goldsmith motion picture theme, uh, though it's yeah. slightly truncated in the next generation, is perfect. Um, yeah. I, I do remember yeah. though just watching that season one opening and just as a kid when we were in season one and that's all that we had just those first few episodes it was exciting and unlike anything that i'd seen on tv at that point oh yeah uh and actually the pilot encounter at farpoint as a i mean i wish you wouldn't, probably shouldn't talk about it too much because i'm sure we'll do an episode but it, it, it at the end of the initial minute or two is really kind of cool um you get like the it actually starts off with the titles there's no teaser uh, yeah. Unlike every other Star Trek show, um, even the originals, the original The Cage, and um, I think um, I think that even that even has a teaser. Um, but yeah, and it goes straight in. And the first character you see is Captain Picard. Uh, you have hmm. a very cool shot of the Enterprise at the start, uh, where it kind of just zooms into the bridge, uh, and then you see Captain Picard. I think uh, he's um, in the ready room, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. I think he's in. It's a. It's kind of a cool shot of him in in shadow, and then walking forward to the light, almost as if like, da-da, here's Captain Picard. Uh, yeah. The time roll, it was just bold weirdo. Um, <laughs> but, uh, we did grow to grow to love dearly, of course. Um, yes. But he's still in his kind of weirdo phase in this episode, big time, and we'll go into that. But, yes. Um, yeah. 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 So when we, we come back from the, for the opening titles, we see Geordie straddling Worf. He's just stood right over him, and it... It's like he's massaging or inspecting Worf's stomach. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's helping at all. Yeah, it's like I, I'm I'm going to try and resuscitate this guy. It's almost kind of like his visor had stopped working, 
and he's trying to perhaps uh, you know do chest compressions, but it's hitting the wrong place, or he's he's trying to rob Worf, perhaps. Yeah. Perhaps he's trying to steal yeah. his stylus. Yeah, and it's also the fact that how do you not see ginormous energy bolt up his arm that made a really loud noise? You know, it was just sort of like, oh my god, he's just fallen on the floor. What the hell? You know, it's like, come on, dude, <laughs> you've got a visor. You should see that better than anyone. What kind of stuff would have gone banging off in your visor with that? But yeah, yeah. <laughs> but Beverly very quickly comes in with another crewman, another medical officer, who is John Mayer, who was a uh, not not to be confused with um, the the singer. It's, Spelled a different way. Um, yeah. But he was a stunt actor who doubled for Shatner in both uh, Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock and Star Trek IV The Voyage Home. Oh, wow. So, yeah. That's so, a great fact there. Yeah. It, big stunt look a bit Shatnery. Yeah. Look a bit Shatnery, yeah. Movie yeah. era Shatnery, absolutely, yeah. So as they're trying to revive Worf, Worf suddenly wakes up, uh, completely oblivious as to where he is, and it just attacks everyone. Uh, he throws uh, the medical officer right across the room so he does this massive jump backwards which why they yeah. why they hired him you know uh and yeah. it does take him a while to get up he seems to be really stunned for a long period of time i'm getting the feeling that you did the same thing the same thing as me i was fascinated by this medic throughout this whole scene i was like he is selling being th thrown big time he was just yes. dead for a bit it's like wolf killed him by pushing him he's just like on the floor going oh my god i've been thrown like really hard i can't like get up now <laughs> Oh my god! And he kind of gingerly is a little bit up by the end of this little scene, and yeah. even then, like Crusher asks him, "Are you okay?" He just doesn't say anything to us. But, <laughs> like, well, but he's rude I do, as well, I guess. yeah, because <laughs> Beverly sedated Worf and and picks yeah. him up, and as she's walking out with Geordi and they're both carrying him, it's the way that she's looking at Worf on her left, and then she turns to her right and just goes, "Are you okay?" That feels very Beverly to me that That's she is not, still yeah. checking in. I think it's like. You know, okay, you've had a bit of a tumble. You know, I, I know that you don't have any, and even if you have cracked a rib, I can just fix you up in like two minutes. <laughs> because of extra, you've got off lightly, girlfriend. So yeah, you should like. You need to just get the hell up. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and and then and then we get to see one of the best actors that we've ever had in Star Trek. It's Marco Lemo. Who, oh uh, God! Yeah, he's one of the Soleil, is he? Or is uh, no, he's one of the Anticons. We 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 were. In, oh, the Anticons, yeah. Yeah, we're in one of the Anticons uh, quarters. He wasn't credited for this because this was his first role in Star Trek, and he he wasn't sure it was going to pay off. And then afterwards, yeah. he had so much fun. He was just kind of like, okay, I want to be credited now. Um, but he's known for five other characters. He played Tabok in the season one finale, and as a Romulan. Uh, he also played yeah. Gul Masset, the one of the first Kardashians we'd ever seen. Uh, he was a card shark in Times Arrow. He played a clothed, uh, plainclothes police officer in Far Beyond the Stars because he was playing the sort of humanized version of his most famous character, Gul Dukat, as well. Oh, yes. We all know Gul Dukat. And he's also in Total Recall, Mark Alamo, um, when Arnie takes off the fake mask that says two weeks and malfunctions he's one of the sort of soldier people that um tries to capture him after everything goes nuts in that spaceport scene That's so it. yeah oh, um, i haven't seen recall. that in so long i i had I, yeah i had no idea yeah oh that's cool but yeah i i, I love this scene as well because yah's explaining to Riker that the antigans are unhappy 
because their dietary requirements have not been fulfilled. Yeah, and but all- what is this? I mean, this is another, I think this is another Roddenberry force it feeding. It is. It's the stuff we do in the 24th century, all right? We don't eat, eat meat. Because you know? yeah. <laughs> that's it. All they want is, is an animal, actual meat to eat. They're very uh, carnivorous, this species. And Riker's like, we don't enslave animals for food purposes. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? Um, I'm, I'm kind of down with, with veganism and, like, and, and, and all that. So I don't mind them making a big point um, about, you know, in the 24th century, don't eat meat. I mean, I hope, you know, I kind of hope that we do get to that point. You mm. know, we don't have to sort of... Um, and enslave animals, as Riker said, just to eat them. But it just feels very pre, uh, quite preachy in a, in a kind of a condescending way a little bit now. But I guess, well, yeah, maybe being a bit harsh. I guess they also wanted a way to explicitly state that replicators uh, now cover all of our needs for that, um, when that might not necessarily be clear just from watching them have stuff from replicators. Yeah. Um, and, and, and if you are someone that's kind of inclined to be, a, if you're a vegan or a vegetarian or anything, they do kind of make a point in other series of saying how cool it is to have meat. Like, oh my God, you really eat meat. Oh, cool. Uh, you know, that's so amazing mm. that you cook real meat when surely you should be disgusted by, by that and be like, why? Yeah, you know, it's like like O'Brien said, says it. I think in Deep Space Nine or, or later Next Generation, says, yeah, my mom used to cook real real meat in like a cooker and, and, and everyone's like finds that really charming. And quaint, but um, you, I think you'd be, you should be horrified. Mm. Um, you'd be like, that's ridiculous. No. <laughs> Even the Anticons are horrified by this, because when Riker's explaining that they use replicators, which is why they've been seen eating meat, but it's not really, yeah. their response to finding out that it's just replicated stuff is sickening. It's barbaric. <laughs> <laughs> which I don't really understand how you could find that barbaric, but again, it's just really <laughs> selling, like, look how... How badass these these Pacelle are that they can they they disgusted us not eat not eating meat. Um, yeah, again, kind of kind of a throwaway scene, but I guess it's just really trying to establish the twenty fourth century. Generally, yes. I think it's probably the intention and, here. Yeah, I, th- I think that's the thing. There's going to be a lot of times where we're like, "This is stupid," and then we're like, "Yes, but it was early days." It's like it's like berating a child for making mistakes. Like, how stupid a child? Oh, but they are only five. So it's fair. It's just, it's just so season one. It is so season one, a scene <laughs> like, like that. It's, but you kind of love it at the same time. No, we're mm. slagging it off, but it's like, oh my God, that's so cheesy. I love it. <laughs> in, a way, in a way, it really kind of goes to show how much the show developed, that we look back at this stuff now and go, okay, that was a little bit cheesy and isn't up to the standard that we got later. Exactly. Yeah. In a way, that is actually a good thing. That to be honest, the next scene. The next yeah. scene is where we go full season one. Yeah, um, because the, the, the Doctor Crusher has on. Yeah, like <laughs> the headset with the targeting yeah. targeting reticle over her eye. Because <laughs> because Worf's passed right. out on and he's on the bed and she's attending to him and I'm just kind of like, what is that supposed to do? Like, are you going to be doing a rectal inspection with that? I should hope so. I mean, they are season one in real hard in this episode. Yeah. It looks like uh, there's something called a Tiger R-Zone, which is a kid's toy you can look up, it's, which is a little headset. Yeah. You put it's over so the like that. It's like one of them or a Sega lock-on, like, like a little fun little light gun game that you used to get in yeah. the 90s. It looks like that. Yeah. Yeah. I used to have one that was kind of similar as well, that was a voice-activated uh, water pistol, but was mounted on your head and looked not that dissimilar from Locutus's. Uh, kind of 
yeah. apparatus on the side of his head. It would literally just sit yeah. there and just where you would normally have the red laser, that's where it shoots the water out. Um, but you would also have a little targeting reticle as well. Bev um, is doing really kind of low-key Borg cosplay, I think, um, with this. <laughs> I can only afford to make a face bit. Sorry, guys. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm Beverly. is half-assimilated Beverly. Yeah. <laughs> but we do see this kind of electrical shock that got Worf before transfer from Worf to Beverly. And Troy comes in, sees that Worf's readings are back to normal, and Beverly just says that, like, oh, we're both quite normal now. And it's just in such a weird way that it's delivered, like purposefully so. It's um, really obvious that something's going on. I mean, a lot of, um, I, 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 after I watched the episode last night, I went straight and checked out Law Runners, um, mm. kind of review of the episode. And he was quite, he found, he, he got really frustrated with how they make it too obvious that someone's possessed. But yeah. We have a different perspective as the viewer because we're looking for that, whereas the Enterprise crew members aren't going to instantly see Bev say something slightly odd and be like, oh, my God, she's possessed by an alien. Red alert, red alert. It's just going to be like, oh, that was kind of weird for her to say the, that, but eh, it's probably the, a weird day. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of explained away later in the episode, but still, it's also when you have that weirdness and you've got Troy there, you think that... Troy's probably the one person they wouldn't be able to really hide it from. Yeah, I mean, and she, and she makes it clear that she can sense like weird stuff with this possession thing like going on. Yeah. So uh, they don't really know what Troy is doing wrong to not pick this up at this stage. But yeah. that actually does kind of explain that she senses duality generally in people. Yeah, so yeah that comes up later, grasp. yeah. Yeah. I, I love that Worf is so confused as to what's happened and Troy is assuring him that Beverly will explain everything. And Beverly just stands there and just walks out the room. Just leaves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they're just kind of like, uh, maybe not. <laughs> not what you want to see your doctor doing, really. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, the doctor will explain everything. The doctor just has a weird glance and just walks out. You're going to panic a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I, I sort of just said that, you know, um, I don't think she's being too blatant at this point. If you're not looking for someone to be possessed by an alien at this stage, which the yeah. crew aren't. But. Yeah, it's still kind of weird, but again, I don't think you'd be like, you know, uh, yeah, you shouldn't leave a patient on on like the bed there, but um, yeah, it's it's just yeah. it's just a, it's just not a well done scene, really. Mm. <laughs> I don't yeah. think it was just there to show that something's going to transfer into Beverly. Yeah, yeah, and then and then we have something that I I do like uh, sort of setting a basis for things that they do come back to later because Picard and Dave are looking over all the stuff with the energy cloud that they've discovered. And it comes up in conversation about it being a mystery. And Data saying, a mystery is only a mystery as long as it remains uninvestigated, sir. And Picard points out that he does love a mystery, but that it love is going to have to wait. Yeah. But it does have to wait until they've delivered their delegates. Yeah. And it's that a is... A shot, I think, at this point. I think they say Parliament. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is... Uh, yeah. <laughs> exactly yeah um th this is very much in line with what we'd expect from picard anyway yes it is yeah and uh, it just, this isn't like i know season one picard is kind of annoying and a bit weird but that that is firmly established and will continue to be his character you know forever yeah. really until to this day yeah yeah and wesley is surprised that beverly is back home early and this is why i'm calling her beverly because we have two crushes and that's just going to get confusing otherwise um <laughs> Uh, Bev is what I like to call her. By the way, I, <laughs> forgot, 
I freaking love Beverly Crusher. She's one of the best characters. Um, and not so much first season when she's like got the got her own hair. She's not wearing a, a, a syrup. Um, but um, <laughs> that's the syrup fig wig uh, for people that aren't um, from London. But um, yeah. Yeah, a lot of people didn't know that, actually. You, uh, I think you actually told me that, that she wears a wig in later seasons yeah. for continuity yeah. reasons, which is really interesting. Anyway, yeah. yes. <laughs> Same with uh, Troy as well. Uh, Troy yeah. definitely wears a, a wig throughout the show. Yeah. Uh, I think it was only in, in like the later movies where it's her own hair, I think. I or... don't think um, with also Auntie Kathy, uh, which is my name for Janeway, um, <laughs> I don't think she has a wig at any point. I think that's her no. vibrant hair. They, yeah, they Let, just kept fussing with it, is the thing. Yeah, they just went mental um, over it, yeah. yeah. But she's back home early, and she's looking at Wesley's homework, and she asks him to tell her about it. And Wesley, for the first time, is enthusiastic because his mother is actually taking an interest in warp theory, which is uh, very unlike her. And yeah. she's asking, would this affect navigation? It's like, it's engineering theory, Mom, not, not helm control. Uh and this is when we see a lot of that obvious stuff that you uh, alluded to. It's like, oh, yes, the helm is located on the bridge. And so she just walks out and he's kind of left going and going, Mom, is something wrong? And yeah, let's, let, let's talk about Wesley for a moment because there's the yeah. whole thing where a lot of people flat out hate him. Like from our perspective, I mean, you might have actually have a different opinion. But um, OK, from my, pers- my perspective, I'll, so I was a kid when I was watching this stuff for the yeah. first time. So for me, Wesley, I, I I was Wesley. I pictured myself as Wesley. I would love to have been, I, I would dream about being on a starship um, and being, you know, part of the crew and everything. So mm. I lived vicariously through Wesley throughout all the, you know, the point, um, his entire run on, on, on TNG. So I never thought, oh, he's annoying. You know, he should, why is he so good at, at everything? I was too young and, and I, I enjoyed his character because, like I said, I was living vicariously through him yeah. to really think of him um, in that way. So I don't really share the, he's annoying, they should have got rid of him, that's ridiculous um, thing. I didn't really have that at all uh, when I was no. watching him. I, I did a little bit later on, but it was more everybody hates Wesley and it was supposed to be like, am I supposed to hate him as well? Is that like a collective thing that we're all supposed to yeah. feel? And as time went on, it's just like, but you know what? I don't, you know, yes, he, they perhaps write him a bit too smart for a kid of his age. You know, he's, he's yeah. a bit too good in a, in a few episodes. Um, yeah. But I, I loved it. I thought that Will Wheaton's portrayal and, and acting was actually quite good in it. Uh, and more time goes on. I, I just warmed to the character more. It was literally just that there was that kind of point in time as a teenager when it's the expectation is you're supposed to hate him. And if you don't, there's something wrong with you. Is almost yeah. kind of the feeling that I was I was getting from people. I think um, it was actually Gene Roddenberry uh, created the character of Wesley and modelled him on himself when yeah. he was that age as someone that aspired to, you know, go to space and do all cool stuff that he couldn't do when he was a teenager. Yeah. And I think it's a great story. I think again, you could look it up on a uh, uh, on on YouTube, but. Um, Wesley um, Will Wheaton explains that someone like went to a convention with with Gene um, Roddenberry when he was still alive, of course, um, and the show was still going on. And someone sort of asked a question of Wes of uh, Wesley Will Wheaton and uh, about how you know why is like Wesley so crap and annoying? You know, um, we were kind of rude, I guess. And then mm. Gene Roddenberry just laid into this person saying, "Look, this is like 
I came up with this character because of this, that, and the other, and did a really great explanation of why they have this character on there that completely like stunned everybody, and I think they like applauded. And Will Wheaton was like, "Oh, that's re- thanks for sticking up for me on on that." So G. Ronnery yeah. himself stuck up for Wesley at a convention. Um, it's a story. So you, if you look it up on YouTube, you better hear it. It's really interesting to hear. Mm. Yeah, Beverly then arrives on the bridge. And she just kind of goes over to Geordie Station and just goes, this is the helm. And Geordie, brilliant line. He's like, unless there's been some changes I've not been told about. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of a good line. What, yeah, what else can you kind of say to that sort of question? I know. But he's just kind of like, well, yeah, duh. And then Picard walks over to her to ask about Wolf's condition. And she doesn't really give him a lot of information. So Picard is pressing her to give him an accurate diagnosis since it involves a bridge officer. And I think this comes into a lot of the season one Picard where he doesn't have, he seems to lack a lot of empathy and he's just basically like, like I'm giving you an order, damn it. Yeah, he's a bit of a dick, really. I mean, I remember <laughs> like, we, we we talked about like watching the first episode on VHS for the first time and I think Picard was really annoying and, and crap. Mm. I didn't really like him um, compared to the warmth of and and you know and the humor of Captain Kirk he had none of that and he was completely humorless and very blunt and very dry and he he is in this episode um it's hard well, really it was really hard to like him in that first you know handful of episodes yeah i think patrick stewart himself has even gone to, on to say how that's kind of how he was he was very serious on set whereas all the other cast were very jovial him coming from a theater background everything was supposed to be taken seriously. He didn't feel that the American actors were seeing things that way. But over time, he lightened up and warmed to it. And I think that a lot of Picard being, as you put it, a dick, uh, comes a lot from how Patrick Stewart felt on the set with the uh, the rest of the cast, I think. Yeah, there was a bit of a... He he didn't really... uh, He he struggled to sort of join in on on the hijinks and the fun that they all did um, with each other. But the funny thing, I remember Data... Uh, Brent Spiner um, saying at a convention that initially he was very stiff and didn't want to join in and actually told some of us off. But when we kind of broke him <laughs> and, <laughs> and got and like got uh, and he started joining in, he became the worst one out of like, you know, messing around and telling jokes and screwing up takes and everything. So I love that. He became the worst one out of all of them <laughs> when they when they eventually got him to sort of lighten up. Oh, that is so cool. Yeah. Yeah, it also feels very Jean-Luc of him as well, in all honesty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, she, so she replies that she has to go run some medical cost checks on the ship's computer, and so she, she's standing by Data, uh, completely silent, um, as Data asks what helm control has to do with medical cross-references, because she's obviously accessing the helm instead. And then the blue energy just leaves Beverly and enters the computer. Yeah, and again, no one knows it's a giant noisy blue thingy. And yeah. you know what? I'm going to go back to like Law Runner again. Um, by the way, we love you, Law Runner. We hope you're watching us. Probably not, but we hope you are. He is awesome, by the way. If people don't know who he is, look up Law Runner. He does great reviews of Star Trek episodes, really in depth stuff. He's part of the reason why we're doing this. Actually, it kind of inspired me certainly to want to do kind of a Star Trek podcast. But he does get. He sort of made a point on this episode that it got. He found that very annoying. The idea that a big blue bolt comes out of people and is very noisy and no one would notice. Again, mm. I'm kind of. It is a bit silly, but you have to really show the audience in a in a good way that something is coming out of them and going into somewhere else. 
I'm yeah. not sure how you could do that in a way where it wouldn't be obvious to the crew as well. So you kind of have to give them a bit of the benefit of the doubt on that one, I think. Yeah, it's definitely, it's Hollywood lightning. And when yeah, you yeah. look at actual electricity, sort of shocking people, like you don't physically see it. It's not all this kind of like blue lightning yeah. kind of effect. Um, exactly. I think it is just, like, as you say, it's visual for us to understand what's going on. I don't think it's representative of what they would have seen. I mean, if you deal with Quantum Leap, where Sam Beckett zooms into a very tight enclosure a lot of the time, sitting next to someone in a huge, massive blue light and everything, I mean, well, I guess they can in that where the other people don't see it, but yeah. you, you have to be obvious to the audience to know stuff's going on. So, yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of has, has to happen, unfortunately. Yeah. So she's disorientated. She's leaving the ship. Computer stations start going offline left, right, and center. Multiple reports are coming in about multiple system failures, uh, including Assistant Chief Engineer Lieutenant Singh reporting that there's issues with the warp drive circuits as well. And well, Star he, Trek legend he is, Lieutenant yeah, Singh. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> Related and, um, to Khan Noonie and Singh, I'm sure. <laughs> Quite possibly. No, it's, yeah. it's more of an Indian uh, background. But yes. Picard asks Data what the chances are of the ship having all these failures after less than a year out of space dock and he's like a virtual impossibility so we've got to a point where in the 80s they're kind of like in the future computers will be perfect yeah and yeah. we now know that the galaxy class is one of the most unreliable starship designs in all of starfleet history yeah and the whole the whole idea of computers never failing on a, on a, on a starship uh, that really holds up doesn't it in the subsequent three series <laughs> four or five series and episodes um, I mean, cause the thing is it's kind of like okay we can't have interpersonal conflict uh we can't have ship failures what else can we write about so i feel like yeah. it's like well you can have one of those two. i think voyager though had like didn't the bioneural gel packs like get, get yeah uh, get infected with cheese <laughs> and that screwed up the whole um, thing. So, yeah, and they were like, oh, we need to replace them with isolinear uh, circuits. So, yeah. But I guess you could argue that's a new kind of really cool concept, actually, wasn't it? Buying your old gel packs. Yeah. Um, um, so you could argue, well, they're kind of, you know, a semi-trusted new technology, whereas this is just isolinear circuitry that's probably, well, I don't know, it's not really said in the original series if that's mm. what this just circuitry, isn't it? Yeah. Um, it's probably just an evolution of that. So, yeah, I think things are probably fairly 99.9% .9 reliable at this point in time. And, and similar to your mention of the uh, sort of shot from Encounter at Farpoint, there's a really rare shot from outside the conference room lounge window. And you get all these weird, bizarre, like camera shots in the first season. Um, like the pilot, everything, every shot of the crew when they're sat down is like underneath them, facing up to them, and it feels really weird. And there's a and the rooms are really dark. Like the observation lounge is there's not no no lights on it. Someone turned the lights on in the observation mm. lounge, and also in the in the, in the quarters of the Soleil and uh, the Antigons. Like, uh, well, maybe you could say, well, they they need it to be dark or something. But even the mm. corridors are really dark. Well, that being said, later on, we do see the corridors where they're lit really weird, where it's really bright at the bottom of the, like, low down. It's like they've got yeah. a light that's right just around the corner, just off screen. And then that's yeah. the solo light for the entire corridor. Like, is it um, the director that wants it to be lit in a kind of weird, slightly gloomier way? Uh, but yeah. then, the, like, in the pilot, the corridors are super bright, you know? So, mm. yeah, just a bit but, weird. But as the camera's kind of outside the the conference lounge window, 
and kind of looking in. I thought we saw Ensign Sonia Gomez, but it's not. It's just another extra that's playing a lieutenant rather than an ensign. Um, it just sits there, yeah. It's a cool shot, actually. It's actually it is. a cool shot. We don't really get like sort of dynamic zooming in from outside stuff like really at yeah. all past yeah, the first it's season. It's a really rare shot that we just, I don't think we ever saw that kind of angle again. No. Um, Picard is full on annoyed that no one can explain the malfunctions and he's almost berating the crew for it. Yeah, very unsympathetic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sing, though, and this is the thing that we know what's going on. We know that there's something that's entered the ship and we know that it's entering the crew. Um, And so we're in this kind of thing where, okay, there is a bit of a mystery. All we don't know is why. Like, what's the motivation of it? There's not much of a mystery for us. It's more just seeing how the characters can solve this mystery. And Singh is actually quite close with this because he figures that it is some sort of electrical short that's jumping from system to system, but he just doesn't know how as those systems aren't actually connected in any way. Yeah, he's pretty good at his job, Singh, I have to say. Yeah. Yeah. Picard's asking him, like, have you spoken with Chief Engineer Argyle? And he's like, with all the engineering stuff, Argyle, I thought was a really nice name drop as well. Season one, leg end. Yeah, that, that so for, for those who may not be as familiar, he was the original chief engineer before Geordie was. He uh, was a guy with a beard. Um, he was played by, I think it was Biff Yeager, I think was his yeah. name. And That's kind of Scotty vibes about yeah. him. Yeah. And th- there was this whole thing where uh, he could have ended up being the chief engineer permanently. And there was an interview that Will Wheaton gave uh, where he was saying that that could have happened if it wasn't for the fact that the producers started receiving letters being written by fans, both in support of and complaining that they'd been solicited to write in to make him permanent before the series had even started airing. Sort. Yeah. So they were like, oh, okay, so he's he's deliberately done this to try and get this position. And that's what killed that chance. It also highlights the fact that it's just bizarre that, that there's no chief engineer that's basically a regular part of the crew in the first season. Yeah. There was um, a... who, who didn't think that was something, a, a role that would be needed, that wouldn't be needed, you know? Yeah, because there, um, there was also a female chief engineer that was in the... Yeah, McDougal, yeah, in the, in the pilot yeah. and so on. So, yeah, they, they, they went through a few. I thought that Singh was actually one of the... Uh, chief engineers growing up as well, but obviously he's just the assistant chief engineer. Yeah, he's the, um, the assistant to the assistant manager. Yeah, yeah. he's the Gareth <laughs> Keenan to David Brent, who's uh, Argyle. Yeah, <laughs> assistant to the, the the leader, the team manager. Yeah, but yeah, Picard, he's he's not satisfied. He just wants an explanation. By the time they reach Parliament, Q taking your shot, um, and. <laughs> <laughs> and then Riker and Yar are confronting the Antikans in their quarters about weapons that they've discovered, which are supposed to just be tools for basically, uh, you know, killing sheep or whatever. Yeah, yeah. That they have, and they immediately confiscate. Why them. is there one sat down on the floor? Every time they go into the quarters, one of them is just sat on the floor. <laughs> he is, yeah. <laughs> that that just you know like we're talking about how I guess it's because we're watching these on big screens now. Like we talked about how the the background uh, medical dude earlier, we just were both fascinated by and didn't really pay attention to the actual scene. This is the same thing. I was just watching the one in the, behind everyone. He just sat there, as next to a sofa. There's like a sofa there, and he sat on the floor with his arm on it. I'm yeah, just like, I don't know. 
did you fall over and you just couldn't get up again? It was like, what? <laughs> I, I don't know if the director's just kind of like, everybody's just the same height. We need a variation in heights. And, and maybe that's what it was, but... Yeah, yeah, or it's like, oh, the, these guys are weird, like aliens. So yeah, some stay like sitting on the floor. That's 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 very alieny. Can one of you guys do do that? And they're like, oh, all right. It's <laughs> like having the uh, the Ferengi as like rabid rodents. It's like this, this is their key. Yeah. their key distinguishing feature is they like Gorsed. to sit down. Yeah, exactly. It looked like they're from He Man, and they like sitting on the floor. It's just such a weird, you know. And they've got very uh, very interesting shaped heads, like like sideways telosians. Yeah, well, th- these are the Star Wars-like ones. Yes, ones. exactly, are, yeah. Yeah. But they, they're having warp issues now as well. And Picard's complaining because this is supposed to be a state-of-the-art vessel. Welcome to the next seven years of your life, Jean-Luc. <laughs> and the subspace radio is down, so they can't even inform Parliament that they'll be late. Take a shot. And then we're in another consultation. There's a lot of consultations between the bridge crew in this because it, it really is a very much so a bottle episode. It's the first one, I think. It's the first bottle episode. On I think gen. it is. Yeah. yeah, it will. Yeah. yeah, it will be. Yeah, and so Data and Riker and Picard—they're all talking about the malfunctions, and Data gives this really exorbitant, long-winded theory, and Riker's like, "We have a saboteur on board." He's <laughs> like, "That's what I said." <laughs> yeah, again, very typical of early Data as well. Yeah, and and this is where it, it's also interesting. Because Riker believes that it's one of the delegation, but suggests that the Ferengi could have bought or bribed them. Because back then, the Ferengi was still seen as the big bad. They were the Klingons of the next generation. They were supposed to be the the big threatening uh, species before they were completely undone. They, were considered a mockery, and they dropped it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, they were really pushing the Ferengi as like the big evil bad of the the universe. There, although they were rescued by Armin Shimmerman in Deep Space Nine, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, famously so. We've we've got to, you're sounding like a private eye, sir. And data, rather than just asking like private eye, as you would later, it's very early season one with inquiry. Private eye. Yeah, he loved saying inquiry, didn't didn't, yeah. didn't he? he? Inquiry. He, yeah, he would always sort of preface it like Encounter at Farpoint, they hit you with that like literally straight away in the pilot within minutes of it starting. He's already on to look he data's funny, he asks questions a lot. Hey. Yeah, you know, and then yeah. he grows out of it quickly. But the thing that's a bit hard to to sit on is the fact that he went through the whole of Starfleet Academy and didn't. Yeah. He, he'd had quite a long career with other people. And it's only when he hits the Enterprise that he starts to actually adapt his language. Yeah, I mean, so. in terms of age, he's like in his mid to late 20s, I would yeah. say, at this point. So, yeah, I mean, he also gets, you know, he loosens up mm. with that stuff later as the series goes on. So you could argue, oh, that's because he grows through the series and changes yeah. his language. But... Yeah, you think it'd be a lot of the way there already by now, if that's what is, you know. So, yeah. yeah. This is a early foray for Data, because Picard explains, um, but points out that in reality, it's not as fascinating as Data may believe it to be, but in literature, criminal detection can be a fascinating exercise. And he essentially introduces Data to Sherlock Holmes in this episode, which becomes quite a favourite character of data's throughout the series yeah they both kind of foreshadow uh both picard and data's holodeck shenanigans uh that would come up you know later in the series um mm. i don't I, don't, I doubt that was already planned at this point but obviously no they went i think it developed from this yeah yeah 
But, and they say the immortal Sherlock Holmes. You actually think, oh, what if they said the immortal Hulk Hogan? And they became <laughs> obsessed with him. And we had a WWE-themed episode in the holodeck or something, you know. Well, it would have been um, WWF back then as well. It would have been WWF, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It, it wouldn't have <laughs> aged well. <laughs> yeah. Then we have Wesley helping out in engineering. And Singh is kind of like, I can take it from here. You're scheduled to, for class work now anyway. And then under his breath, he's just like, sorry. And I, I like that about Singh, that he's, he's being very forceful, but there is that kind of like, look, I'm, I'm really sorry, dude. That's, uh, yeah, it seems that everyone in engineering knows Wesley, like in, yeah. in Naked Now. Um, um, Shimoda, I think was his name, is like, hey, what is, how's, it, how's it going, dude? And then like, I guess Singh appears to know him well, um, yeah. to allow him just to hang out. Um, I think it's established as well that he kind of does, it's just good to be like extracurricular study, really. Like it is, yeah. Because like engineering. He's, He's feeling that he's learning more in engineering than he is in school. But Singh is pointing out that the captain's orders are very clear. Yeah, and, we've and kind he of agrees that, that he learns more, yeah. Yeah, we've kind of had that early on that he's, he's allowed to be on the bridge. He's allowed to do this stuff, but he's, he's still got to see to his studies and things. Yes. And that is the priority. And so Singh is really just following those orders. But you can see that he's just kind of like, I get you, Wesley. Yeah, you know, I I understand. I I think yeah. it's a nice character moment for for this guy that we don't really see. Uh, yeah, I think this. it established. No, I mean, it doesn't really get well, it won't get a chance to, but it also no. establishes that Wesley's kind of known in engineering and is trusted to do bits and bobs here and there to in order to help his study, and they all kind of are happy with that. So that's kind yeah. of a tiny bit of Wesley development as well. Um, yeah. on with that little interaction. Yeah, and and Wesley returns to his quarters and has a conversation about that whole thing. He basically just, he almost vents to Beverly uh, and he refers to their earlier conversation uh, when they were last together and she doesn't remember it at all. And meanwhile, whilst all this is going on, Singh is struck by that same electrical energy that's affected everybody else, but he completely collapses. Worf comes in and unlike what had happened to Worf, Singh is dead. I do want to say though, as much as it's very dramatic that someone has died, Check out those sweaters on on Bev and also Wes. That is some <laughs> season one stuff right right there. Yeah, some, like some amazing, amazing like twenty um, fourth century. Yet looks very eighties uh, clothing. There, mm. gotta love that. Yeah, she does look very relaxed though. She does. Yeah. Uh, so now an investigation begins into his death. So Wesley Worf and Geordie are examining the console. Warp engines are now fine. Wesley's saying that there those aren't the same readings as they were when he left. And he insists that Singh couldn't have fixed it from that console because the issue was inside the engines. Yes. Again, it's like they're just not trying to get into too much detail with things. But the but, ship... But it's also like, you know, Singh, obviously, it's unfortunate he didn't really get any development at all and he's dead. Yeah. Why Why did Why did the trans the electrical transfer kill him when it's gone through two people already and they just got a bit, you know, disorientated? Yeah. It's yeah. like, I mean, I mean, it's really explained. I mean, they kind of touch on it later a little they bit. They do. Not, I was going to say, yeah, but, it, it does come up later, but it's it's deemed more as an accident as yeah. this energy life form being is kind of working. You would think it would, get, it would get better at transferring at this point. Yeah. Like, it seems to have gotten better up, up, up to now. Yeah, it's just a thing yeah. that annoyed me. <laughs> yeah. So, ship's gone back to walk. Yar is questioning the Anticons as to where they were the previous night. And I, I do love all of this of just, you've got all the bridge officers doing all this stuff and Yar's just running around constantly child-minding all of these, these uh, delegates and constantly yeah. questioning them. 
and uh, they're pointing out that they they've been eating, and she's like, "But that was for several hours," and the, the Antica's are like, "Yep," and they're on the floor. One was on the floor still. Yeah, he, uh, it's still on the floor. He is <laughs> in this weirdly dark room. <laughs> I, I I will I will concede that if you've been eating for several hours straight, you probably do want to sit down a little bit. You need to have a little bit of it. It's like just having a giant, yeah, kind of like um, yeah. special, like um, a giant kebab or something. They're tiring, man. So yeah. um, all the blood goes to the stomach to digest it. God knows what it's like for them. So yeah, you can headcanon that. Yeah. And then Beverly asks Worf about his previous memory loss because uh, she's saying that she's kind of experiencing the same. And so Troy immediately suggests hypnosis. Hello, 1980s. <laughs> Yeah, she's got a little gadget that does it as well. And it's just does like a rotating LED, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just, oh, the, I shrugged really. My arms nearly came out of the, the sockets when I shrugged and my eye rolled <laughs> at once. It, that yeah. is real season one crap there, like yeah. big time. And, and if, if having a counsellor on the bridge is, isn't and enough... And Dr. Crush is cool with that. She's a scientist. She's like, yeah, cool. Hypnosis. That, that still works in the 400 years in the future. That's a yeah. good point, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's just... It, it's pure 1980s. It's it really Darren is. Brown. I mean, come on. Like... <laughs> yeah. And Yar's feeling that all the delegates have been answering her questions with lies, because of course they have. And Data is sat in the chair... And he's just smoking on a calabash pipe. But seriously, why? Yeah. Why? It's, um, well, I know it's funny, and it's, oh, look, it's a funny data scene, lol. But, but why would he replicate that? To, to tr- like, is he trying to become Sherlock Holmes? Because that might improve his ability to solve the thing. It, yeah, I know it looks funny, and it's cool. And like, look, at every time Brent Spine is brilliant. We love mm. him. But it just doesn't make any sense for him to do that. You know? There's two things. Yeah, I think one, we know that Data is kind of childlike at this point. And it yeah. seems like yeah. this is first fandom. Like, it's almost like he's found something that he, that, like a character that he can obsess over and want to cosplay as, <laughs> effectively, is what he's doing. I guess, um, yeah. But interestingly, if he has been studying Sherlock Holmes, and, the, and real world, this is just because this is how everybody else sees it. But Sherlock Holmes of the novels never smoked one of those pipes. That was never the kind that you would smoke in the stories. Yeah, it was just a stereotypical depiction because of early dramatic productions. Uh, There was a guy, I think it was William Gillette, had made an artistic decision to portray Sherlock Holmes that way. And then everything since then has had him smoking this kind of pipe. But um, data didn't look up on the internet. Yeah, like, but again, I think it's just yeah. it's in the eighties. That's how you portray this is Sherlock Holmes blatantly without needing any other clothing or anything. Just that one prop is enough to go. He's doing Sherlock Holmes, so it it works. He's doing this after a meeting where a crew member got killed. Oh, I'm gonna do, I'll, I'll I'll use my funny prop I replicated in that meeting. That'll be fun. Yeah, it's, <laughs> you know, it's like it's a yeah. bit and silly. It's, it's just nonstop Holmes phrases. He's pointing out that he studied every case. So he's just basically just blitzed through every book and so on. Yeah. And he's like, yeah. something is afoot. And Yara's kind of confused, almost kind of like, it, it looks as though she's kind of picturing, why is there something that's a giant person's foot? Yeah, yeah. Whereas Riker's just pissing himself laughing 
of all of this. There's like huge amounts of Yar in this episode in a weird way. There is, really yeah. Too much. Yeah. She, she's she's just, still, I like Yar, but yeah. Yeah, she's very much just running around doing her duty and just kind of like, this is happening, that is happening, and it's just, what? <laughs> the yeah. whole time. And the weird thing is that Data is there and he's got his computer monitor on the desk. And he's saying like, sensors show them passing here and here. And he's tapping the screen with his pipe where they can't see it. He swings the computer around and it's just an outcast display. There's no map. There's no nothing. It's just buttons and swings it back. It's like, what were you pointing at? What even was on that screen that was but, remotely relevant? I know it's in hate. We can see it in HD now, but um, it's it's funny the way he just swivels it back and forth yeah. like within a matter with it for two seconds. That genuinely is is a funny little data moment. They're yeah. really establishing the potential for comedy mm. in the data character, which we got a little bit in Naked now. Um, yes. Since then, now to really had anything like 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 that. But here they're really, um, and it just shows the, the how great Brent Spiner is mm. um, as well at doing this stuff while still being you know data yeah yeah because we're, we're nitpicking at the props and and those choices yeah. but in terms of the performance and the character it's it's good he's great yeah yeah absolutely um and then he's also pointing out in a very formal holmes mannerism that uh, the anticons and the soleil are too engaged in wanting to kill each other than to be trying to cause harm to the crew of the ship so he's kind of yeah. ruling them out and he's like it's elementary my dear Riker. and then he has this nervous side look and then he's like Sir, <laughs> yeah. So, the, so he points out the, these two races that are really trying to kill each other. With we really we need to try hard to get into the Federation. Um. So, so yeah. But yeah. also, I think um, going back to Data, I think it's probably on the basis of how he played this episode and how he had the Sherlock Holmes mannerisms that probably made them think at that point. God, we should have a way of making him be Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, hey, we've got a holodeck. We that's it. Let's make a holodeck episode where he's Sherlock Holmes because he's so good at it. It was probably this that sold that idea was this episode before they had a firm plan of him to actually do it. I think yeah. that's fair. Yeah. 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 I can believe that. This this is when we've now got the 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 hypnosis going on uh, with oh. the, the LED spinny light handheld device. And yeah, it definitely looks futuristic. Yeah. <laughs> Beverly recalls walking up to Wolf, who was on the bed. She feels that someone else is there and she's like, get out. Get out of my mind. And it's... It's a decent performance, to be fair, for yeah. having to portray somebody being hypnotized. A very and, difficult uh, performance because the director's like, "Yeah, you're like hypnotized, so look like kind of weird and like say things in an awkward way." And yeah. It's how, what would you have to work with there? And yeah. she does a pretty good job. She, like you know, she looks a bit. It looks creepy, you know, how she's mm. um, portraying it. Which is, I would have loved to have seen Wharf hypnotized. We didn't get that's, that, unfortunately. That's it because Troy's kind of like hilarious. Yeah, because Troy's like, that's almost exactly what you said, that something was inside you. And it's yeah. like, why couldn't we have watched Worf going through all of that stuff? To see a Klingon yeah. being hypnotized would have been hilarious. But again, maybe it's just, it's so early on, Worf's character still is not very well developed at this point. Exactly, Maybe, yeah. yeah. yeah I think it's one of those things that, knowing what Worf becomes, say, by DS9, it would have been interesting to see it, I think, more than... It's already clear as well that they have, they seem to be more enthused by Worf's character than Yar um, already uh, to include him in more prominent, you know, moments in this episode. Um, yeah. There's nothing to stop Yar being the one that got zapped at the start, um, you know, and uh, and have all these scenes where, you know, she's being treated and, and everything um, yeah. and being more of a focal it's, point. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's no wonder that uh, Denise Crosby was not really happy with how they were treating her character, really. 
You know, yeah, in, in it, it's kind of the early the early issues with that. Are to, uh, you can see that here. You know, Wolf is supposed to be a background character that will come in. Well, really, an encounter at Farpoint. He has prominent scenes in that that could have probably been Yar. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's straight away. She's they're struggling with Yar. You know. Yeah. Choice Easter Picard that it, and this is the the bit we kind of uh, alluded to earlier. It all explains the duality that she felt but that she mistook it for the duality that Betazoids feel in everyone. And I really like this concept because she's even pointing out, like, is even including Picard himself when he's faced with a decision and trying to decide to where to go. And I love the line that she positions, which is, who are you talking to? Yeah, exactly, yeah. In those moments, like internally when you're making that decision. And I, I think that's a, a really insightful way of approaching this. Yeah, it really gives you like a kind of a way of you to relate to what it'd be like to be an empath, you yeah. know, or be empathic. Um, yeah, that's what, it's framed really interestingly by her there. Yeah. Hmm. When you are thinking of having those conversations with yourself, if you've got a betazoid that can read minds. Exactly, yeah. You've got to bear in mind as well, she is empathic. She's not telepathic in the way that her mother is. She can't hear thoughts. She senses emotions and that that duality still exists and is something that she can sense then. Yeah. I think it's actually quite an interesting concept too. Yeah, I mean, I guess it, it obviously, you know, if she could flat out sense what people are doing, it would make, you know, a lot of episodes kind of difficult to, to have her in because there was a bad guy being all sneaky and the other crew weren't detecting it. She'd be like, yeah, he's lying. Basically like Lawaxana does in many episodes when she turns up and solves the yeah. issue because you can instantly know what, what people are thinking. Um, it kind of benefits the, the drama for her to not just to flat out know exactly the words that are running through someone's mind. Yeah. She had yeah. to have be dulled in that sense. Yeah. Though that they, they still weren't entirely sure exactly what her limitations were throughout the series. They seem no, to it was kind of vague. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I, I love how Picard approaches Data and says to him, let's proceed without the pipe. And you can tell that Data is so into wanting to be Sherlock Holmes and just and play this role that even though he's put the pipe away, he still hangs on to a lot of the Holmesness. Uh, and he, he's going through about how they, they, they can ascertain that it can't be a family member or one of the crew. And that he feels that the investigation has been worthwhile because that in itself eliminates the entire crew and the delegates. And then he yeah. refers to the great detective's credo of we must fall back on the old axiom that when other contingencies fail, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Which yes. we know is very yeah. tightly tied to, to Holmes and stuff. And then... And says it later on in Star Trek Six, basically. Yes. Same phrase, yeah. And then yeah. what probably one of my favorite moments in this entire episode is that you hear bubbles from the fish yeah. tank that's right next to him. And he turns and he looks at Livingston and then looks closer with his magnifying glass. He just picks yeah. up the magnifying glass and leans in and stuff. It's like, can you imagine if it was Livingston that was trying to kill the crew? Just upset well, with his captivity. Oh, there's plenty of fan fiction where Livingston is actually an alien uh, that, that lives in, <laughs> in their disguise as a, as, a, as a tiger fish, is it called or something? Yeah. A lionfish? Yeah. Um, yeah, you get a good you get a, a good look at um, Livingston probably for the first time. Um, I think like in early episodes, I wasn't even sure if there was even a fish in there. I thought it was some kind of cool three D diorama thing that Picard had. But, I'm yeah. pretty sure we got a good look in uh, Encounter at Farpoint because the, they did have quite a few yeah, scenes there. Could be right, but, uh, actually. Yeah, but yeah, it's just it's just the fact that 
<laughs> he just starts to investigate Livingston. I, I thought it was a, a brilliant moment. That um, yeah, I, I and I do wonder was that scripted or was that Brent Spiner? And it I wouldn't be surprised. Like, yeah, Brent it Spiner. does feel like yeah. that was Brent Spiner doing that, and they yeah. and they kept it in because it was just a nice little quick comedy <laughs> thing moment. Yeah, yeah, it really helped to uh, sell the data's into this Sherlock yeah. Holmes. No, no idea which way it is, but that's I, I I would like to imagine that that's exactly what it was. And yeah. But we're back on the bridge and the helm control goes offline. The ship drops to impulse power. And then Picard rests his hand on the console and energy flows into him. And Geordi's kind of like, are you okay, Captain? I thought I just saw... So Geordi can see this energy, but didn't with Worf earlier. I mean, granted, he may have not been facing the same way. I think he had his back to him, but Geordi can still pick it up with his visor. And Picard's like, I'm fine. Everything is fine now. Again, yeah. the, the very weird way we've we've already come to expect. Yeah, at this point, as a viewer, you're like, come on, Geordie, that's right next to you, man. And thankfully, he does kind of acknowledge it without going flat out like, oh my God, this stuff has happened and you've had blue electric stuff going in, going you. Um, yeah. So you're still probably thinking, well, come on, you definitely saw that. Uh, yeah, we've, already, we've already got into how that's kind of annoying, but probably necessary at the same time. Yeah. It's still the way that LeVar Burton delivers it. It's still a very realistic kind of like, hang on, did I just see that? Yeah. You, you don't know. feel like he's actively being dumb or, yeah. or not, not looking at it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then there's a whole thing about, you know, why they dropped to impulse power lieutenant and they find that the helm's malfunctioning. He's like, malfunctioning? Look again. And of course, everything's all fine again. So Picard gives Geordi a new heading, which is making them turn back on themselves. Jordy, you can tell, is very reluctantly following those orders. Riker starts to question him, and Picard insists that there's essentially a scientific discovery waiting for them at the cloud. So that's why they need to go back. And I just love the way Picard delivers these lines. I mean, the yes. first one where he's malfunctioning. You're wrong. Look again. And it's, it's, <laughs> it sounds hilarious. And yeah. it's really blatant. He's really blatant. I mean, this we have another... Don't be so um, foolish. Yeah. I mean, there, there's another episode in season three where, like, a, a Picard duplicate um, is uh, Allegiance, I think is the name of the episode, uh, uh, is knocking around on the Enterprise, and he's kind of not quite so obvious, but he does things that have, that have become like, obvious later on. So, weirdly, this mm. happens again with the Picard, um, you know, a weird Picard thing. It's uh, the way he delivers those lines are, like, so funny to hear. And, um, like, even you're kind of thinking... The, He's the most obvious out of everyone that's had this entity inside them at this point. The way he's he's acting and saying yeah. things. Yeah. But he's still tiptoeing that line because he's like, am I expected to explain all of my command decisions? Is what he asked Troy and stuff. And she's yeah. like, well, no. And it's like, that's fair to a point. But yeah, it's it's enough for them to go, the, there's something wrong. We do cut briefly to an Anticon roaming the corridors. And this is where you can really see how odd the lighting is in the corridor, where it's kind of yeah, lit yeah. bottom up. And O'Brien is arguing with uh, with this Anticon to return to his quarters. A Soleil that just steps out of his quarters, demanding to know what the Anticon's doing there. The Anticon's just wanting an explanation as to why they've changed course. And then they almost end up with a fight breaking out that O'Brien's obviously having to, to deal with. And... We don't really see much more of that, but it's just, again, the, the, there's too much conflict between these guys. Why they're even on the same ship is 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, within 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 spitting distance of each other as well, when they know they're going to be violent. Why are they even going to be? Why are we even considering putting them in Starfleet anyway or Federation anyway yeah. when they're this violent towards each other? Yeah. But maybe we'll to sort their their stuff out first. But more significant is the fact that we get to see Chief O'Brien um, uh, for the second time. Yeah. Uh, an encounter at Farpoint. He wasn't named uh, in that. He isn't named in this either. No, uh, it's not until next season that he gets a, his name. And even then, it only is O'Brien. We don't get Miles until a little bit later. But it is retconned uh, that it is canon that this definitely is Chief O'Brien and not someone yeah. that just looks like, like him as it is in the first well, in, in all good things, um, the last episode of TNG has established that that really is uh, O'Brien. Um, yeah. So, yeah, we get an odd little situation for him to appear in, but you know, mm. we don't know any different at this point, really. He might just be doing odd jobs around the ship at this stage in his career. Yeah, we've seen it in the original series where we've had multiple recurring characters that are blatantly just going through different departments yes. and uh, and shifting around. Uh, che- che- Chekhov, potentially, um, as we yeah. sort of know that he knew who Khan was and he wasn't on the bridge at that point. So, yeah, it's a thing that yeah. they do. Um, yeah, it doesn't mean that he yeah. wasn't part of the crew. Um, exactly. So, yeah. Exactly. Uh, now, this is this is a thing that I find really weird, is that you've got Riker... Beverly, Troy, Data, and Geordi all discussing planning a mutiny, which is all based on speculation. But Troy is sensing that he's concealing something. Um, Picard, this is. And that Picard is dangerous. Now, I'm looking at this and going, who's still on the bridge? <laughs> like, because just let them all leave. Like, Worf is the only person who's not there. And Yar... And I would imagine that Yar's probably still attending to the fight that's just broken out uh, as well yeah. uh, between the Anticons and the Soleil. Maybe Worf has gone to join, but like, who, who else does Picard have on the bridge? All the senior staff have just left the bridge. And that's not suspicious. I don't know. And in, in that episode of Allegiance, they do exactly the same thing. They all gather together in like Riker's quarters and explain <laughs> that they might have to mutiny against Picard. So, they've, they've, so they do this again. Yeah. In a very similar way in that episode, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's 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 odd. I mean, I, I was more interested in all the Star Trek model kits that are in yeah, this room because I don't know <laughs> whose um, whose quarters this are. I mean, it's obviously just a redress of the of the quarters. But yeah, there's a, a model of an original series shuttlecraft behind Troy. Uh, behind Beverly, there's the Constitution refit. It's like a silver model of that. Yeah, yeah, uh, as well. So somebody who's got a passion for some older lineage of uh, establishers. And again, showing that it's all the same universe. And we didn't have many ship variations at that point either. No, I mean, um, we see in the ready room, there's the different enterprises. Um, you know, they weren't sure if there was going to be an Excelsior class before they put put those yeah. uh, different starships up, but it firmly gets established in that. Well, the Stargazer um, also... changed model as well, didn't it? In, uh, in Picard's ready room yeah. later on. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's also, you know, it wasn't firmly established that this is canon with the original series, um, apart from what the press was telling us and like the, you know, the production, you know, the adverts for it were saying and the news about it when it was being made. It wasn't until Naked Now that they firmly established that this is in the same universe as the original series when they directly reference an episode in that. Um, I don't think it's firmly established the time differential um, mm. until later on. But yeah, this is just asserting that more, isn't it? Having all these, literally having like a the Galileo um, and um, you know and 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 the Constitution uh, Reef Enterprise 
there mm. quite visibly. That was all clearly done on purpose yeah. to really sort of show like, look, this is clearly we're in the same universe. We're in the same timeline. They, you know, they, these other ships are now in the past and they're revered at this point in time. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a nice touch. You get a little kick out of these things. Don't you? It was a Trekkie. It when was, you see yeah. these in the background. E- yeah. Even now, even now, I, yeah, uh, yeah. possibly even more so, uh, these days it's like, Oh look, they, they had that even back then. Um, yeah, I mean, I, there was a great example recently in uh, Discovery when you see a ship is named after Voyager uh, yep. and even has like uh, the same registry num number. I was like, oh, look at that. It's got Voyager's registry. It's cool. Mm. <laughs> um, I, I, I like that Beverly's suggestion is that she'll order medical and psychiatric exams from Picard. It's like, you're just going to go up to him and just ask for this. And then Biker and Beverly confront Picard and she does exactly that. She just kind of goes, I want to conduct some medical tests now. And, and Picard's like, why? And yeah. she seems kind of surprised that he's asking why. And yeah. Riker, rightfully so, just outright says that he believes the captain to be under alien influence that could endanger the ship. And yeah. Picard spins this around and says that he believes that they, plus Troy, are all just overworked and he orders medical exams for them. And then he starts. Which is a bigger red flag. <laughs> yeah. And it, he starts doing a lot of manipulation, sort of saying, like, isn't everyone acting strangely? What's wrong with your mind, doctor? And then he shrugs it all off as, I really am too busy for this kind of nonsense. Do I have to call security and all this kind of stuff? And uh, just blasting them as the, as the ones that are wrong in a way that's a little bit harder for them to contest against. Yeah. And it's a bit, it's a bit too silly, I think, as well, and overdone. And yeah. also. Crusher should have more power than that. She should yeah. be able to, like, say, I'm ordering you to these tests because it's a, you're potentially a hazard to the crew, which he does say. She yeah. should be able to override whatever Picard says. And, like, says, look, if you're not going to... I I, have, I outrank you in medical, which is something people say in the other series and everything. Mm. The doctors, I outrank you in medical matters. If you don't go to the sick bay right effing now, um, <laughs> I can relieve you of your duty and Riker will just take over anyway. Yeah? yeah. You understand? So you, I order you now. She should just be able to say that, and then that would kind of nip everything in the bud. But I guess she can't because that wouldn't progress the story to where it needs to go. Mm. It would probably nip everything in the bud right straight away and then work everything out very quickly. But I think in reality, that's probably what would happen. She should the captain on on penalty of yeah. having his like his command taken from him. Yeah, yeah, and you can't even put it down to this is a new ship with a new crew and that there's not that kind of bond there because she's known Picard for several years before this. Yeah, well. exactly. And that was already established, yeah. um, even even this early. So, yeah, her, more than anyone, should be able to know if there's some weird stuff going down with Picard, um, even though he's being really blatant now at this point. Yeah. So, yeah, um, it, it's, 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 a, it's kind of cool seeing Picard being all creepy and sinister. He, he plays mm. it well, but in my mind, it just doesn't hold up. That he can just dismiss being told he needs to take medical exams like that so easily and them just caving yeah. in. I don't buy it now. Yeah. yeah, whether you're looking at it from a professional perspective or just her caring for him as a friend, I, yeah, I, exactly. I feel that she would have approached it a much different way. But yeah. that's how things go down and Riker ends up walking out and, and down a corridor, again, oddly lit. Um, at least they're consistent with that. But he gets hooked by a soleil, so one of these reptilian ones, with this fluorescent green hoop on a stick. It's basically one of those yeah. light sticks, right? <laughs> yeah, it looks, 
utter crap. It, it looks like, oh, look how 24th century that is. It glows. And I think that's why <laughs> the corridors are lit the way that they are, because otherwise that just, as you know, with glow sticks, they don't show up well under normal lighting. Yeah, yeah. But having it darkly lit there, it's almost like they just did that lighting just for that one thing. But it's also, it grabs him, and it doesn't feel like it's any kind of risk or danger to him, really. Yeah, I mean, they could have just used a, a really, they could use a bit of rope. But yeah. that would have been fine. No one would have complained. Like, so everyone's got, everything's got to be neon and cool and 24th century. It was just like, you know, if they can over, they've over-designed it in a weird way. Yeah. If, if anything, um, just ha- yeah. have a little scorch mark around his neck. That would have been enough. Just a yeah, tiny like bit of makeup to go. He's a thing or something. Yeah. Yeah. But basically the Soleil thought he was an Anticon because he's like, just like, sorry, wrong species. <laughs> <laughs> A great then, line actually that's really funny yeah and then vikers starts hailing yard just pointing out that there's a lethal game of hide and seek going on between the soleil and the anticons it's like again why is this still continuing just Yara is <laughs> throw them really in the brig job. throw them in the brig put them in different quarters put a post to security guard put a force field up there's well, loads the of ways you can control this can't they lock the doors until they behave themselves I mean, if they're a threat to each other's lives, that's a pretty decent reason to, you know, to, to lock them away just to get yeah. before they get to Parliament. You know, yeah. That, that it's, yeah, it's just silly. Very, it's, God, it's so season one, this episode. It hurts. It really hurts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that Beverly enters the room with the medical exam results just on a, a little card thing and, uh, you know, digital card. And she hands him to Picard for his inspection. And he just outright ignores it. Because she's kind of like, yeah, aren't you going to check them? You think there's going to be more of a push for that? Like, there's some ulterior motive behind it. But then she's yeah. just kind of like, are you John Luke? And then this is when the alien just kind of gives up in a way. And it's just like, he is here and more. And she's frightened by the more side of things. And, and he's just like, and it elates us. And soon we'll both be home. Talking in the kind of we um perspective um yeah. you know it's not it's not yeah. first person anymore very, very very creepy as well like Picard kind of does a very very evil smile going on and a, yes. a creepy stare and he plays it well again it is a bit campy and a bit over the top in certain bits when he does it but this bit the way he talks about it is genuinely cre- creepy i think yeah. yeah it's yeah it i'm conflicted because it's really a crappy part of the episode but at the same time seeing Patrick Stewart acting that way with Picard is just an uh, absolute delight at the same time. Yeah. To be honest, so, uh, Beverly could have could have done this earlier. I mean, she yeah. just completely foregoed yeah. like doing If he was happy just to spill it like he did, like pretty quickly without much persuasion, she could have done this before they asked for medical exams. And it mm. seems like he would have probably been okay just saying it then. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and Riker's figured out that something from the cloud has occupied Picard's mind. He's, he's kind of put everything together now. Um, and, and again, it's we, we're almost robbed of a lot of the investigation and the whodunit kind of stuff because it's been shown to us. But in a way, I'm not sure how much more you could do it and still have it interesting, especially when you think of how slow the, the start was yeah. as well, setting everything up. If they didn't show something, there would be nothing really to capture any imagination and stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's a bottle show, isn't it? It's basically yeah. done to save on the budget. So they have to put pair back on, you know, how they might have portrayed this otherwise. Yeah. yeah. 
And Picard returns to the bridge. He views the cloud on the view screen and, and sees that he has That's an entire... That's a cool shot. That's it a is. really cool shot. He, like, he walks in front of the view screen, which sort of scrolls across to fit the, you know, as, as he's walking past it. That it looks really cool. Uh, when they, yeah. you know, it looks like a movie effect almost, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you definitely get a sense that this is a big area as well. Like, yes. Like, you know, normally when you see something on the view screen, it's just like, it's just there, um, especially when it's from a distance. But this, you kind of get a scope as to how massive this whole thing is. Yeah. Is and cool like the original series, the view screen was no bigger than probably a modern day TV. But um, you really get an idea this thing is like an entire wall. Of, of screen uh and that shot really helps to i'm not sure there's there's any similar shots this early in the series certainly before this episode but it really sells that idea that this is a mega mega display that they've got there yeah i'd say that west silence has least when you've got to nigilum right behind him is probably yeah, the, yeah. the closest thing uh, around the early seasons yeah i think best of both worlds picard walks in front of the view screen as well when they yeah. go into the nebula but that's after this so yeah. so yeah yeah but he he explains the whole thing he, he lays all the cards on the table and he's saying that when they pass through the cloud it picked up a sentient being which was a scary experience for that being and equates it to having um a claw scooping you from your own world and and when you think of about it that way it's like yeah that actually would be a kind of terrifying experience. Yeah. And yeah, and so this being has been desperately jumping from person to person and then the computer and then find that it's a sim more simplistic intelligence that's in the computer, but it's enough for him to work with. And then apologizes uh, with regret for the accidental death of Engineer Singh. And so yeah. you, you kind of get a sense of okay, maybe not everything. It's just it trying to figure things out and what this new world is. And it's clear at this point that this entity and Picard have fully combined and they're almost a single being that's kind of consciously aware and, and again, referring to themselves as we. It's very much kind of like, um, uh, like Venom from Spider-Man where you've got uh, Venom and Eddie Brock and they always are like, we, you know, rather than seeing themselves yeah, yeah. as an individual. Uh, it so, also suggests that um, the entity kind of got better at moving around and controlling people as as the you know as it jumped between them, yeah. um, and now it's kind of managed to perfect it at this stage. Um, yeah. yeah, and then we sort of find out what its whole plan is, which Data doesn't buy as being possible because the being wants them to exist as pure energy together, still in this unified form. I think it kind of really likes the way that Picard is. And Data's kind of pointing out that as an energy pattern free the limitations of matter, he might be able to travel anywhere at any velocity, but it just doesn't see how that's possible because Picard is physical matter. So this is where Obviously. we end up with an odd decision, which is that they're going to use the transporter to turn him into an energy pattern. Well, as, as uh, Captain Kirk says, um, that's arrogant presumption. You know, yep. the, the energy being is just making an assumption that, oh, he likes going around in space. I can turn <laughs> him into a floating space bulb. Yeah. Um, he'll, he'll be well up for that. <laughs> but just the, the way that the transporter works, I'm not sure if I buy that it would work this way. It's I don't complete know. Not nonsense. It is utter, yeah. utter nonsense. This is where the episode gets ridiculous and kind of ruins the whole thing, really. Yeah, I mean, the whole it's... ending happens extremely abruptly, gets wrapped up in a matter of minutes, and is kind of done for a joke at the end. I know we haven't got to the very end yet, but 
it goes it completely tanks from from this point on yeah yeah because he immediately submits his resignation beverly yeah. finally tries to relieve him of duty it's like where were you like an hour Which ago you could have done <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly um then we get this electrical surge throughout the entire bridge as Picard places his hands on the control panels and the entire crew are blinded, I'm assuming Geordi included, um, and incapacitated, and they can't restrain Picard. So he just walks out of, of, uh, of the bridge. The red alert klaxon is blaring throughout the entire ship. He heads to the transporter room, steps on the transporter pad, and beams out. Yeah, and it also suggests that uh, he fired this energy throughout the ship or something because the transporter chief is just lying on the floor with blue energy going and through. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you're right. He is just sort of passed out there. And the crew, like obviously some time has gone and they can't find any readings, any signs of Picard within this this cloud. And Riker just gives up the search and he uh, gives the orders that they need to go to Parliament. Troy then senses Picard, but only... Picard as an individual. And it's as though the combination wasn't possible, it wasn't permanent, and that he's now in trouble. So, and again, it's really weird reasoning as to how they kind of get to this. So they decide to move the ship in closer to see if he can enter the ship systems in the same way that they scooped up this being the first time around. Yeah, Can, shouldn't they be worried they'll scoop more up accidentally? Yeah, that's it. So that's it, exactly. They didn't um, even know they did it the first time. How do they know they won't do it again? Yeah. It's just utter nonsense. <laughs> yeah. Worf starts picking up some things on sensors and you can actually see on the Alcar screen to the left uh, that the Alcars change into a letter P, which yeah. incidentally is only in the remastered versions. That yeah. was not part of the original releases. But then Geordi... Yeah, that's what I thought because I remember like, because um, it happened that first time and no one said anything. And I was like, oh, did that happen the first time? And then the second time is when they actually address it. Yeah. But so yeah, it turns out that wasn't in it then before. Yeah, yeah. It's only when you you look at uh, the helm control and Joydi points at it and then it turns into another P and they point out, oh, that, obviously that's P for Picard. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, weird way of arranging it when you could just display text that says, help, I'm in the computer. Um, Which is stupid as well. Like Picard <laughs> is energy and has worked out how to get into the ship somehow and... And there's also like turned in, he knows how to make a P appear on a screen. It's just so many like ridiculous, like, you know, you know, leaps of faith <laughs> you've got to take just to be able to have this work. Yeah. And it doesn't at all. You just got to completely just, just like go brain dead and just let this, let it play out. Yeah. And, um, and if that's you think it. about it too much, it falls apart. Yeah. Especially when you look at the transporter where, because data postulates that Picard's signature and, and pattern will be in there because he was the last one that used it. But, that's not really how we see the transporters working throughout the rest of the series. And again, it feels like a very cheap, easy way out of the whole situation because they just use that and sort of, again, hope that Picard will have his consciousness come into the transporter room so that when they beam, like re-beam that matter pattern back in, that his consciousness will fuse with it. And how will they know that he's in the transporter buffer? How do they know he knows to go into it? It's, it's just, just way yeah. too many things that have to work out. Um, and they just kind of, oh, yeah, that's definitely going to happen. And they just go and do it. And, yeah. wow, it actually worked. It's just like, oh. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing that makes sense is him kind of going like, yeah, what the devil am I doing here? And he, Because he's completely confused. And Troy says, 
that his pattern was from before he joined the cloud. So he has no memory of being in the cloud, which again, it's like, but the consciousness was the bit that came in. The matter pattern shouldn't have any effect on that. And it's, I think it's more just so that they don't have to explain what his experience was like. I I don't know. Yeah. And it it begs the question, like, you know, is, is he a copy? Is that the real Picard? Okay. What beam sing out as energy and then bring him back in. You can maybe bring him back to life if this is how the transporter works or something. Yeah. Um, and why doesn't everybody just beam out into energy as energy into stuff? That would be cool. And you, you could do amazing scientific explanations with that. But it was just kind of just shrugged off and just accepted as a f- weird little moment. And no one mm. takes it very seriously. And it's kind of played for laughs a little bit at the end. Yeah, especially when Picard is glad that Data's gotten rid of his damn pipe as well. Um, yeah, yeah. To kind of show where his head was at at that point, and then we have Yar bursting in, and she's surprised to see the captain, but then is kind of like, okay, I I need to explain this to you because there's a pool of blood outside one of the delegates' quarters, and one of the cooks has reported that he's been asked to cook a reptile for the Anticons, and that it looks like one of the Soleil delegates. And they flat out killed someone. Yeah. No, no one bothered securing them in their quarters, which is stupid. And now this is this has happened. It's just like utter face, weapons grade face palm. Yeah. And right then now. we end up with Picard feeling that with that situation happening, where there's now a murder on the ship, uh, technically a second one, but you know between these delegates and this whole thing is completely falling apart. And with everything else that he's just been through, he's just like, I think I'll take a rest. And he leaves Riker in charge. <laughs> And Riker's oh expression is just kind of like, gee, thanks. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. And they just sort of, he just holds that for about ten, three seconds. And then it's in the episode. It's just like, it, oh, it's so first season. It hurts. <laughs> what I can say. It's just, it, that, they, it just ends so abruptly. And so, so, but okay. So I've got a book <laughs> called Beyond the Final Frontier. Right? Okay. And this mm-hmm. came out in 2003, and I got it in some kind of sale or something back in 2003. So I was like 20 at the time. Right. Okay. Um, still loving getting the Star Trek books and everything. And mm-hmm. I dip into it every now and then because it's an independent Star Trek book that's not made by anybody that works for Star Trek or anything. Um, and um, it's a review of the entire Star Trek universe up to 2003. But it was the first book I read um, that was critical of stuff. It flat out slags off like huge chunks of Voyager. Uh, chunks of you know next gen deep space nine everything and it's not it doesn't like makes my bones about how janky star trek can be at times whereas like the (laughs) the compendium um books where just kind of every episode is cool and awesome and check out how they made these things this genuinely says if something is crap it'll tell you it's crap so it says about lonely among us its rating is and it's not so much as they're out of five or anything it's just a a, a, like a line or a couple of lines oh oh, you've got the book with you right now yeah, I'm looking at it right, right now. I'm gonna, I'm, this might be a regular thing where I just tell you what um what what this book says because it will give us a <laughs> bit of a talking point. But they say um it's two guys that do this. Uh, that are, it's called Beyond the Final Frontier. You can look it up. I think you can still get it. Um, a who, who are the authors? Uh, Mark Jones and Lance Parkin. Apparently. Okay. So yeah, Beyond the Final Frontier, and it says a fairly straightforward and inconsequential story. Inconsequential story but one that takes itself far too seriously. I think that's kind of um, that's gotten off lightly there. Yeah, it, it takes itself seriously until the end, I think. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I feel that there's good ideas there. I almost feel that 
rather than having this um, underwhelming uh, invasion of the body snatchers type thing, which has been done far better in subsequent episodes. And again, we can kind of forgive it because it is one of the early attempts. Uh, and, and, rather than and in invasion of the body snatchers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but if they'd done this later on, I think it would have been even harder to forgive. So I think we can give it, it's, it's the seventh episode, right? Yeah, but, there, there's a couple of good examples. Uh, Power Play, like yeah, TNG's is a good alien possession episode. Yeah, that's um, that's the one that was jumping to mind uh, as well. Probably um, Sub Rosa might actually be worse uh, uh, than <laughs> this. And I yeah. think probably a good one is uh, Cathexis. Cathexis in Voyager. Yeah. yeah. Um, the idea of it jumping between crew members and they turn on each other is, is done quite well in that episode. Yeah. yeah. I. I feel that almost dealing with the Soleil and the Anticons, I think if they dedicated more of the episode to them, like there seems to be a lot of stuff going on between them that they really could have actually delved into. Maybe it was just too much for that point in the 80s on American television. Maybe. It felt like they, they, they got the A plot, which is an entity possesses people on the enterprise and it just wasn't enough runtime from that yeah so they came up with this bit extra bit um involving the, two delegates yeah, yeah. the b plot it, it, feels <clears throat> like because there's not enough substance there it's really really weak but if you turn that into the a plot i think that you could have gone in really deep with a lot of that stuff the fact that you do have the this race that really are just not ready for federation membership uh, and they are homicidal yeah. and then having to deal with the fact of, okay, now they are actually murdering each other and how do we stop this? And, and, and how do we, you know, in, in a Starfleet way, you know, have Starfleet wash their hands of it because that's often what they end up having to do in those kind of situations. Yeah. But based on what we know now, it's utterly ridiculous that these two races would even be considered to enter the Federation <laughs> given how violent they are. So we didn't also, do enough research beforehand, uh, before yeah. sending, uh, the enterprise over. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I mean, it, it, they were used as a mechanism to kind of establish some points about 24th century um, Federation culture, like yeah. the fact that they're vegan um, at this point, um, <laughs> and, so, and one of the two small pointers. But, um, yeah, I mean, they could have done without them, really. They could have found ways to pad out the A-plot, perhaps. I guess it added an extra layer of jeopardy that they had to get to Parliament, you know, mm. at a certain point in time which has been done before in Star Trek. We've had episodes already that we've covered in, 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 in the show that, that had that, you know, we must get to this meeting quickly and ignore the stuff that's actually going on. Um, so it was already a bit tired um, at this point. I mean, at the time, like I said, as a kid, there wasn't many of these episodes at this point of possession, people getting possessed. There had been TOS episodes that were similar, but um, but that you know, by now we can kind of roll our eyes and think, "Oh, how many times has that been done now?" But um, mm. I liked it when I was a teenager, but now it doesn't hold up at all. I think it's really terrible. Um, it might have ended better. That might have made it a bit better than it, it ended up. It's not an an utterly terrible like bottom ten or even bottom five TNG episodes of all time. Like you know, things like Shades of Grey are worse than this. But yeah. um, it's probably one of the wor the, the lesser season one episodes yeah. but yeah and it's it's weird because like we we hosted a poll a little while ago and we opted up for the immunity syndrome which we had last episode and also this one and the poll results were very very close there was only like one vote between them and 
I remember when we kind of posted these up, like, I remember thinking quite fondly of this episode and thinking of it as a really good one. Yeah. Uh, the Musi Syndrome, incredible. And still on a rewatch, still fantastic. Uh, this one, I, I think that time kind of makes you forget some of the uh, <laughs> the the tougher bits with this episode. But we, yeah. we, we still wanted to kind of explore it and stuff as well. Yeah, Even I mean, so. um, in my head, when we picked this episode, I was like, yeah, that's kind of a fun, fun episode. Um, hmm. I mean, it's, it, the good thing about this show is even a bad episode, you can talk tons about it. So you can't, there's like very few episodes that you'd struggle to talk about on a, on a, yeah. on a podcast. And it's not, um, and as we've said, it's not without its, its good parts. There's a lot that you can take from it. Like even when we kind of go, oh, you know, Data's doing all of this. At the same time, some of those moments are the best. We have, you know, very cheesy Picard. But at the same time, having him being that really creepy uh, persona is equally enjoyable at the same time. It's it's a very weird... Well, to, to actually borrow from Troy's uh, phrasing earlier, there's a kind of a duality <laughs> with this episode, yeah. fittingly yeah. so. Yeah, and I, in my head, this episode was better than what I, the, the way I remembered it. And then watching it last night, um, I thought it was it was actually pretty poor. Unfortunately, <laughs> kind of a bit crap. I was kind of sad to find that out um, as well, having mm. been a bit of a kind of a fan, a low key fan of this episode. But um, yeah, well, um, that wraps up this episode of Long Range Sensors. So, if you have any thoughts, comments, or questions for us. Let us know by emailing us at longrangesensors at iCloud.com. And of course, you can also follow us on Twitter at Star Trek LRS. If you enjoy the show and you would like to help us, um, please consider subscribing to us on Patreon. By doing so at any tier, you'll get access to our private Discord channel, the chance to vote on future episodes, and access to bonus content. This also includes our new companion series, Subspace Live a live show where you'll be able to hang out with us as we discuss all the fantastic new Star Trek shows that are currently airing. Find out how you can join to get these exclusive benefits and more by visiting patreon.com forward slash long sensors. But of course, one of the best ways to help support the show is to let others know we exist, telling a friend, sharing it on social media or introducing Federation delegates to it goes a really long way to help us grow the show. My name is Trev, and you can follow me at Henry Jones Jr. on Twitter. Um, and if you also enjoy modern and retro video games, you can even check out my other podcast, Console Shock, which you can find at consoleshock.net and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Al, where can people find you? You can follow me at Alastair McFly on Twitter. Everything I'm up to online can be found over at alastairmcfly.com. And you can also catch me on Twitch over at twitch.tv slash McFly. You've been listening to Long Range Sensors, where we've often wondered what a Salayan tastes like. Mm-hmm.